Hey everybody, this is Monte Cristo from Last Free Nation. I've got a very exciting announcement. Last Free Nation will be doing our very first live event in San Francisco at the League of Legends World Championship. Not only will we be in the same city, but we're going to be on site at the Chase Center. So everybody who shows up at the final, you can come to our party as well. We are also going to have hundreds of t-shirts and hoodies to give away for free to you if you drop by, as well as some drink tickets. Now, where is it? It's going to be at Harmonic Brewing Thrive City, which is on the second level of the Chase Center Plaza, overlooking Warrior's Way. It'll take you two seconds to walk up there if you're at any part of the venue. Now, what are we doing? Starting at 2 p.m., we'll be doing some live content that will also be streamed. Myself, Degon, and Wolf will be there to host and do some pregame analysis. We'll be getting live and call-in guests to interview throughout all of that, so you can come have a craft beer and watch that unfold before the games start. During the games itself, if you don't have a ticket to the venue, we will have six or seven 55-inch TVs, both inside and on the patio, for you to join us and watch the games. There will, it's for free. We will not be selling any tickets. So get there early if you want a seat and a good view of that television, because we can't guarantee how many people will be coming to watch the games alongside us. When the event is over, as you pour out of the stadium and want to debrief with your friends and talk about the great best of five that just happened, come on back and have a beer, have some food right after the matches end. So hopefully we'll see you there. Thanks a lot for your support of Last Free Nation. Right, this is going to be another episode of Summoning Insight. We're down to the final here for Worlds. But the World's Prediction Series 2 competition is still going on. And in fact, it continues on beyond the year. Like the fact it has Worlds in it, it's called that all year long, if you don't know. So the CSGO Major will be included in it. TI's over, but there'll be some Dota tournament, I'm sure, before the end of the year. Rainbow Six, at some point there'll be some more Valorant. I think that actually already was like the Game Changers thing recently. So basically everything in eSports that you can think of, you could pretty much bet slash make a prediction on at eSports bet. And if you want to get a head start, instead of the old, when they used to give you a thousand DJ, when you signed up for the free-to-play tournament, you can now get 50,000 if you go to their Discord, which is discord.gg slash esportsbet and message the mod mail just message the mod mail, say you want the 50,000 DJT, we'll tell you about some of the bonuses during the rest of the episode That was the, that was the crazy time to get it up too because if you really believe in the DRX at least a, a, when the matches ended yesterday, it was like 5.1 or something like that, odds on DRX, so uh, you can really go crazy if you think that eventuality has happened. And why the fuck not? Nobody knew they were even going to be here in the first place. It's kind of outrageous that they've actually made the finals. Uh, but we also have another announcement for you guys today, which is that uh, we are going to be doing some live coverage in San Francisco. And I told you guys, uh, tease this a little bit on the stream, but we have our plans locked in now. And we are doing it in partnership with Esports Bet, so thank you very much uh, to them for helping make this happen. But we are going to be on-site, Last Free Nation. I will be. Thorne will not be. He'll be calling in. But uh, we're going to be on-site in San Francisco at Harmonic Brewing Thrive City, which is part of the Chase Center complex. So if you are going to Worlds, uh, we are going to be there doing live interviews, content coverage from that bar. You can come watch live. If you are not, if you do not have a ticket, we are going to have like seven, six or seven 55-inch TVs there. So you can come have beer, have some food, and watch the game from there as well if you can't get into the arena. And we'll have a party 
afterwards, we are going to be giving away free, free Last Free Nation merch there. We're going to have a bunch of special guests. Uh, it's it's going to be a good time. We'll be giving out drink tickets. Um, but we are literally right there, basically inside the Chase Center. It's on the second level outside on the balcony. It's a, it's a, just a bar right there. And so you guys can come drop by in San Francisco if you want. Um, it'll be Wolf, me, and Degon there for sure. And we're likely to bring some more people as well. So the event is going to be really fucking fun. If you're going, come before and after. If you don't have a ticket, come hang out with us during the games. Uh, so it'll all be live right there. Harmonic Brewing, Thrive City. So Thor will be calling in. I will be there in person, obviously. Yeah, but you'll be calling in for content beforehand. Uh, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. Uh, so I hope you guys really enjoy this. Should be good. We'll be putting out more information about it, times and everything like that. We're probably going to be starting at uh, 1 or 2 p.m. Uh, with our live coverage and lining up a lot of guests to interview, and, and everybody will be there in the flesh. So really, really fun. Hope you guys uh, come and join us for part of that uh, and show up early, stay late, hang out if you don't have tickets. That's, that's the deal. So thanks again to Esports Bet for making this all happen. Your camera's a little bit laggy, by the way. Oh, shit. <laughs> all right. It looks, like, it looks like it's cleared up. Um, so anyway, with that, before we bring Wolf on and talk about the semifinals, I thought it might be interesting to address the rumor of Hansama going to G2 which I think is a bit of a surprise. And this is like one of the first moves that they would have made without Carlos. And especially with Neon being a free agent this year, I'm a bit shocked that this, this would be... By the way, wait, wait, you cover the mic when you do your hand. Oh, anyway, sorry, like sorry. That. Yeah, there you go. Uh, well, the key, I can actually give you some juice here because All right, the statute of limitations is gone. So <laughs> the story last year was that G2 was considering getting Hansama for the bot lane, right? But here's the thing. When I say considering, they were like one of the teams inquiring about it. But as people will know, they were already doing the scrims and stuff with like Flackered when uh, Worlds was going on because they had that like European super team and also G2 was doing scrims anyway. And what I heard was this. Are you ready for a fucking gem? You remember how everyone treated Carlos like a piece of shit, immoral actor because he wouldn't sell like his best players to his rival teams? Right. I heard yeah. Rogue basically just put the kibosh on the Hansama move and said, we're not selling him to anyone in Europe, only LCS. And that's the reason why he ended up on Team Liquid for millions and millions. So spoiler, are you ready, guys? Woo, this might blow your mind. Maybe Hansama wanted to go to G2 and be on a super team and go to Worlds and all that. But you know what? It was Rogue, not, from what I've heard, not Carlos being evil, Carlos was trying to bring Hansama in. So instead, Rogue refused to sell to a rival team in LEC and then sold him for mega bucks to NA. And I've heard, like, also, you can imagine what, like, the buyout was like, etc. It was bonkers. And then on top of that, and here's a fucking banger for you. But because they aren't smart like Carlos and didn't have a clause built back in, he could do what Perks couldn't. Remember, Perks tried to just skip right back over the pond and go to Fnatic, but then turned out Carlos was one step ahead again, and he had the little booby trap set for your Home Alone style, didn't he? Well, it turns out Rogue didn't have that. So you know what? Surprise, surprise, Hansama can just go to G2 now, especially because they've done that mad thing where Team Liquid, like, have actually TSM sword arted themselves and paid the guy millions and then just gone like, just keep all the money but don't even play out the card contract like 
These guys, by the way, then go and sit on panels and go like, mm, I'm up for executive of the year. I'm a genius for what I do with money. Like, nah, I'm glad you're all getting your budget slashed. You're fucking clowns. You don't know what you're doing. Like, it's one thing, mate. You've actually managed to, like, voluntarily implement stupid, like, NBA-style contracts where you just get all the money no matter what. Like, you are aware. Someone like Hans Sammer, it's not like that was the deciding factor that you had to, like, agree to pay it all up. So I don't even get that. But I just thought it was a bit spicy on that angle because it was implied to me, like, maybe LCS wasn't Hans Sammer's first destination, which, by the way, if you think about it, Monty, his game sure turned to ass when he went to the LCS, didn't he? It's weird how that works out. Everyone loved, I noticed, to bag on perks all the year long. Now, here's what perks did when he went to the LCS. Right, they did quite well in that walking tournament. They won a split. Yep. They made Worlds, got up the hardest group ever, and they made top eight. By the way, NA fans, how would you like a team that could make top eight at Worlds? Be pretty fucking banging, wouldn't it? But that was called, I was told, a failure. And we needed threads, perks, accountability threads. Where's Hansama? Why are you still riding with Hansama? By that logic, by the way, he's trash, homie. He did nothing. And not only top of that, I, I it's implied for me, maybe he didn't want to be there. Maybe he was only there for money. By the way, probably the worst motivating factor I've ever discovered in life. Not just for myself, for most people. It's just a myth. It's some out of the movies that you're really thinking about. No one's, no one really has the dollar signs in their eyes. That's not a real thing. So I actually found that move quite interesting in that sense because I, I, it's implied to me, maybe G2 was where he wanted to be all along, mate. Spoiler, I'm pretty sure most players in Europe, if they're on a team that isn't winning, would be like, can I play with caps, please? That seems like the obvious move. And G2's known to be one of the teams that can pay you mega bucks salary. So to me, it's like a slam dunk for Hans Sammer. The angle for me is, though, like this is where I'll throw this in as well. Remember, little detail you're all going to forget. Who is the general manager slash the guy who does the trades in G2? Do you know Monty? No, I don't. It's Romain Bigid, who oh, is yeah, French. Oh, yeah, yeah, Oh, that's convenient. Someone French is overrating Hans Armour on a down year. <laughs> fucking hell. Whoa, what's that? Like a spot of big or something? Like, give me a break. Yeah, on Halloween, they're fucking everywhere, aren't they? So that's already, for me, it's just obvious it's why they're doing this move. A lot of people think they can get ahead of the narrative that, like, obviously he was bad last year, but we assume if he's on a good team, he'll be really good again. So it's an obvious, like, buy law type scenario where you're probably getting way cheaper also than he would have come for last year. I don't hate it is a move. I will say, though, like, it does make me wonder, bearing in mind the only moves we've heard about is Flackhead and Jankos are going out of the team, and it was already announced by Jankos himself that he's leaving. That makes me wonder, by the way, this is a bit of an implication, since you all were telling me Hans Sammer's like the best AD, you do realise, guys, that implies that if they keep him broken blade, he's a weak side ADC. Yeah. By the way, there's no weak side ADC in history is the best player ever. I don't give a fuck what any prayer fan says. There's a reason you're the weak side homie and that someone like Uzi Eyes like, hmm, that's weird. I don't play my game this way. So all I'm saying is like that there's a lot of weird implications in this move, actually. It's not as simple as just like Hans Sammer to G2. Well, I mean, and I, I agree with a lot of what you said, probably about his motivation. And you know, I think I think that team was just very dysfunctional, which probably caused an increased loss of motivation once he arrived because it is rather shocking considering he had an excellent performance at worlds last year like really 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 good uh and then coming into this year and falling off a cliff now i have to assume that given his career this was just an off year an unmotivated year perhaps uh who knows if there were other issues or he was struggling with integrating into the team because it looked like no one ever really got integrated in that team and they never really had their own style on team liquid so I think this, I mean, on paper, it could be very strong. And I guess because he's a free agent, maybe you just take him instead of Neon. But 
I would have thought that, you know, Neon would be a perfectly good ADC for this roster. I hope on it just seems like Hansam is more of a risk right now because of his recent form. But do you think you can get him you get him back into shape, then perhaps it's a good move. Uh, I think it's really interesting to have him with Targamas, considering the excellent year that Targamas had and uh, the potential of that bot lane. And like you said, the integration with Caps as well could be fascinating. I'm a bit surprised to, to hear about the Yanko stuff as well, because I thought overall, Yanko's had quite a good year. Um, it's, it's, I'm curious which direction they're going to be going for a jungler in that case, because I thought Yanko's style was quite complimentary, and he has a long history of synergy with Caps, and I didn't perceive that he was really the problem on G2. I think that is a terrible move. Like, hands down, there is not a single reason I can think that you... Because here's the problem. They're not doing that move, as in, we're letting Caps explore his, you know... Uh, Jankos, rather, explore his options. And, you know, basically, it's like, let's negotiate in the off-season. We've got a short list of people. Here's the logic. Maybe you're not number one. Like, for example, maybe number one's El Yoya or something. They're going to break the bank. But my problem with that move is, spoiler, one, if Carlos isn't there, someone else at G2 learned how to poach pretty well. Because either they have got the next jungler lined up, that should be impossible, or even better, and this is mental, they haven't got the next jungler. By the way, if the latter is the case and they haven't got the next jungler porch style, like ready to sign on day one of off season, then in my opinion, this is a ridiculous gamble to take because in this scenario, like it certainly was not implied that Yankos wanted to leave. So I actually think I don't like that. That's one of the worst examples, unless you literally know basically through winks and re, you know winking and a nudge that you know El is joining I think it's insane to gamble one a bird in the hand for two in the bush as it were like because the thing about people like Yankos is the flaw is just too good they're never yeah. going to be like the fucking sixth best jungler in the LEC like worst case scenario is going to be what like the third best jungler or something like you can't you really cannot aside from if you just keep him by like that sort of a guarantee so I think it's a real massive gamble and also that's the part I don't get to me you just do the flacking move like if you get him out and you really believe Hansama's an upgrade I think Prime Hansama would be then why do you need anything else in the team like it's amazing to me the idea that jungle is a position you were thinking of changing yeah, and especially because you... And he was the leader you, and the captain, for fuck's sake, in the comms. He was basically the leader of the team. I mean, the only the only thing you have to assume is that Caps pushed him out, right? Like, there was a... That's not impossible, sure. I mean, what else would it be? Like, he's the bedrock of this team. There's nothing in his performance that would indicate that, uh, that, that he should be removed. Um, so it must be Caps saying, like, hey, I want a new jungler to work with me, and G2 saying, yes, it's, it's literally the only thing that I can... I mean, maybe maybe Dylan, the coach, but I don't know. It, it doesn't strike me as a move that he would make. And it just seems like, why would you break up this duo? And like you say, maybe they already have like a buyout plan for El Yoyo. Is El Yoyo a free agent this year? I'm not sure. I'll look it up. I the other thing up. I would also say as well is, if you think about it, on their team... Dude, you've also just kicked out all of the fucking funny people in the team that were the whole brand. Flackhead and Yankos were the ones who did all the memes. Like, Caps is, like, in the middle. He needs someone to play off. And Broken Blade's, like, okay on stream, I guess. But he's not really, like, a mad joker outside of the comms or whatever. So I even think for the brand, it's a weird move. His contract expires at the end of next year, so he would have to be bought out right now, which means... I mean, G2 the problem might... with that is, though, like, Mad Lions just far have not proven to be a team that can't do buyouts, though. I mean, Mad Lions are rogue, as far sure. as I can tell. Everyone's for sale. Just how much you yeah, want to they'll sell them for sure. <laughs> oh, by the, the way, Lions there's play. the bigger Everyone move to talk about. Should we talk about the real move? Oh, do I'm there? I, I'm not going to drop too much, but I'll just say this. As far as I know, 
they absolutely don't want him in this team. And that's why this move is happening. And it isn't some shit like everyone's going to think, oh, it's just some... No, as far as I know, it's just ego from the fucking management. And no, no, before you all go, those bloody coy guys coming in. No, no, I've heard it's the rogue people. So, and all I'll say is this. I've said, look... I've always thought that was the one part about the rogue equation never added up for me is one of the main management there people there is that guy fly. Right. And look, he might be a flatterer to me and be nice to me, but homie, that, that power doesn't work on me. If no one's noticed. And all I'll say is this, this guy has a fucking million shady stories following him from the rock hat days to all those different lineups to all the rest of it. Mate, the amount of, the amount of orgs that hate this guy. This is one of the only people ever, by the way, that people who've been co-hosts of mine have fucking blacklisted to come on talk shows and I had to have him on my other talk shows he doesn't even know any of this stuff he must know something if he's fucking been on the scene that long so all I'll say is this I take this as a pure ego movement and and I'm just saying just wait for what this lineup is going to look like it's going to be a worse lineup and in my opinion they have absolutely taken what should have been one of the most slam dunk take the same five players into next year just do one more year and they've just blown it completely. Like, this is mental to me. I can't possibly think how this is a good move. Like, is there anyone else who, at the end of Worlds, was like, well, I'd never want to see that five-man lineup play another LEC? What are you talking about? They just had the best split ever after the best year ever, after a top eight performance. It was like, you want to run that one back, for fuck's sake. This isn't when you're like, oh, better, better cut someone just for the sake of cutting them. Why would you change anyone in that lineup? It's a banger roster. Yeah, I mean, I think the roster is really good. I think Odoamne, I mean, Odoamne was extremely good in the. Another in captain LED of the team playoff. as well, by the way. Not so you're all just kicking all the culture people in your fucking teams. Some people don't. Another player with insane flaws. Well, give me a break. Yeah, I mean, look, as far as the rogue management is concerned, uh, I mean, they have they've made a lot of moves that have been surprising in the past. Obviously, like switching up for Malrong and, and identifying that talent is you know, was successful and, and it, it drove Rogue into their first title. I, yeah, I, but here's the thing. Getting him was, but just selling Inspired was just making money, mate. Like, that, that wasn't a good move on, on its face, you know. It just turned out to be a good gamble in the end because of what they got with yeah, that yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. That is a somewhat confirmation bias, to be sure, because they had to find a jungler, but credit to them and their scouting. But I do think Fly and the Rogue management have, like, over time slowly built up this rogue roster and in theory i would think they would have more money with the koi merger now in order to make some moves i don't know maybe there's a possibility they're getting a, a, a like a korean top laner as well to work with malrong like they could have malrong could have uh you know uh worked his connections in the korean scene i have no idea who they're going to be picking up um but yeah i think it's it's surprising and as for odo Amne, it leaves a, a really you know big piece on the market I, you know, he, uh, as as you were saying earlier about G2, it's not that Broken Blade has performed badly, but if you want to shift into more of an ADC-focused uh, lineup and you want to bring Hansama on, it might not be a terrible idea for G2 to go after Odo Amne as well. Like, he's such a useful piece on teams because, like you said, his floor is so high that he and he's so consistent and you know exactly what he is and he doesn't try to be something that he's not that you can really build a lot of stable rosters around him and i would think a guy like dylan falco would probably really like that on g2 so i have no idea where he's going it's very interesting it's not the it's definitely not the move i would have made 
And this is why the- I think GMs suck in LEC. Because let me let me just build a roster for you right now with players that are available. Right. So I've got top lane Oduamne. Then I'm gonna have Yankos Jungle. They'd even played together and been semi-finals of worlds, by the way, guys. So I've got those two. Got Neon as my ADC. Mate, I've already got a fucking playoff team already. I haven't even put two other players. You can put any <laughs> any two humans that fucking support and and mid lane, and we've already got a team. And that's before we even get like, dude, there's good mid laners out there. You can there's like quality players you can sign. By the way, Vethio isn't in a team yet either. I've heard he might be going to a big squad, though. I've heard some fucking rumours there. By the way, are you ready? Here's a little banger for you. I've even heard behind the scenes, just to absolutely drop the fucking hammer on these motherfuckers, I've even heard that Rogue has inquired about potentially moving Larson on a bunch of splits in a row. There's the mic drop. So there's your fucking heroes there, mate. The point there, as far as I can tell, is they just couldn't find buyers, Monty. These are people who are, like, actively trying to fuck their own careers up. The jokers, like, the universe saved them by not giving them the right buyer for Larson, so they, they had to trip over and win a bloody LEC title. Give me a break. What's well love about losers in life is they'll always find a way to lose, guys. They can have success at one point, but they'll find their way to the bottom eventually. I, look, man, uh, you never know what the what the dictates of rogue ownership was at the time. Like they could have been in the, a similar position to Mad Lions where it's like next man up. We're going to take the money when we can get it. It helps fund our roster if we can raise these rookies. I mean, they basically become like a rookie mill, right, to, to sell off later on. And I'm not saying rogue was that way, but the, the mandate from ownership may well have changed uh, is my point. And that it could be that they want to spend big and get some big free agents or something like that. So maybe they wouldn't be looking to sell Larson now. Maybe they were just shopping around to see if they could find the right buyer for the right price. And if nothing came up, okay, we'll keep him. Um, I don't know what the, the, the motivation behind that would have been, uh, but possible with the new coin money, big investment. Uh, they they may have completely changed their strategy because while they've said that the management is remaining the same, what those managers are told about the goals of the team could be quite different now. I mean, it's going to be the same thing probably with FlyQuest. Uh, you know, all the rumors in NA right now are that FlyQuest is going to spend big money because they have this new ownership group that really wants to uh, win. Uh, and I think they see a market where a lot of teams aren't spending big right now. You've seen a lot of the, uh, the, the, you've already seen what is going to be the start of some of the downsizing of the NA scene, you know, like, especially with Spica, just like not getting paid 100K more, even though he's like TSM's franchise player right now and hitting the open market. There's going to be more of that stuff coming up. And all of these contracts are going to end like right after Worlds, guys. And that's where, that's where the chaos is going to start, particularly in an, in an A. But, not a lot of teams are spending, but FlyQuest is going to look very different. They may have the same name, and God, I hope they rebrand. FlyQuest is the absolute worst fucking name in the LCS right now, which takes some doing because there's a lot of bad branding, but it is truly horrible, and it, they've played out their whole like environmental thing, and now that Trisha's, Trisha, the CEO, went to Cloud9, there's not even anybody there doing that stuff anymore, so it's time to just clean the slate on FlyQuest and get rid of that name. Also because the team's direction is going to change substantially. 
Um, I can't even handle that whole, like, fake fucking virtue signal angle. Like, your whole fucking team's premise is virtual sports inside of computers. And your shit is like, let's be good to the environment. Then logically turn the PC off. Go and do something in real life, you fool. Doesn't even make sense. It's the dumbest. It would be like Monty, the people who run Vegas, doing a thing like, we've got to have sort of less risk in the world. Like, you're fucking Vegas. You do the casinos. That is your whole shit. What would the point in do? Well, we know what the point would be. This is just some fucked up version of when BP's like, oh, look, we've got a sanctuary for fucking birds. Oh, we just dumped a load in the oil in the ocean again, killed all the birds. Double the money to the bird sanctuary. So you never actually address the problem, do you? You just do some virtue signal angle. Because that was that was the problem with FlyQuest I have. The GM, the Swagosaurus guy, as far as I can tell, did a very good job. Like, he's had a bunch of seasons. I thought especially the ones where he worked with all the vet players, like Power of Evil and Poor Bird. He had a bunch of seasons where he did a great job. So I actually Great. think, if I had to guess, I doubt they had a big set of budget. I think he probably min-maxed pretty well there. It looked like, I remember, he was coming second place and top three and the chance to go to Worlds. For sure, yeah. That yeah. was fire. But, like, that whole angle which everyone loves now of like oh megumi expert like where she just did silly videos on social media and that's it i saw people by the way mate this is when i knew esports is just fucked in the head was when people i made a thread this was a real thread on the subreddit on league of legends it was called now that carlos is gone who is the least problematic of all the owners and they were just listing people like her not even an owner by the way listing people like her on the basis like i like the videos it's like you know what here's the difference let me know how many championships she stacked. Oh, fat zero. Well, I don't really give a fuck if she just did some nice videos on Twitter. Like, is that really what the entire world is now? Just Twitter. You know, Twitter's like the least meaningful part of anyone's esports career. And cretins are going to define your entire esports career by Twitter. And the joke is, I don't care about Twitter. I'm still better at Twitter than nearly all of you. Look at my fucking numbers. I trip over and get that engagement, hot son. I'm the most problematic, whatever. That should even, I might do that. I might be my new angle. There you go. You all want to be the least. I want to be the most problematic. How about that angle? What does problematic even mean, by the way? It's just some coward fucking euphemism, in it? I think, I think the FlyQuest like, branding thing was a poison chalice because I, I'm trying to remember where it came from. I think the name came from like a clan because the Edens family owns the Milwaukee Bucks. And I think it was like the, the like gaming clan of one of the kids of the Edens family, some okay. shit like that. So it was just a dumb name to start out with. And I think Trisha did a good job considering that was what was dumped on her plate. And because of like the family connection, they couldn't actually change the branding. Like she did something with nothing. And I think that was that was kind of the FlyQuest philosophy, just like you're talking about with the GMing. They didn't have a lot of money, yet they still fielded, they punched above their weight for sure. And I think they punched above their weight in the branding too. I think she did a good job given what she had. It, you know, but I, it's played out, right? Now they have money to actually do something real, and that's, that's what we should be seeing at this point in time. Uh, so I'm excited about that. The rest of NA is, uh, is looking pretty dicey right now. I will say that some of the rumors surrounding Team Liquid at the moment are really interesting. Didn't they? I, I think they already announced that... Um, I think they're... I'm looking up right now. I think they already announced that, uh, that Ayla... Like oh, I guess it's it's the young okay. Young's contract was extended through twenty twenty four, and so they, I think they did it for Ayla as well, um, which is interesting because now there are rumors of them getting different bot lane players. Uh, so they, I think they randomly switched directions. So they may have thought they were going budget, and then 
now have money again because of sponsors. But that Team Liquid roster is going to be really interesting. And there are a lot of like big free agents coming up, like Core JJ and Impact. Um, so it's good. The, the NA the NA Wild Ride is about to begin, and it should be should be quite fascinating. I mean, I heard basically Core JJ will probably go to another NA team to keep like the green card status or whatever, but it yeah. just won't be Team Liquid. Is what I heard. Yeah, I mean, it, it might be Team Liquid. We'll see. <laughs> like I said, I think they managed to... Well, the to problem he also has, money. by the way, if you're a fan, is there's not going to be many people to choose from. So it depends who can actually pay you. This isn't like the past seasons. Any other season, yeah, you could probably walk in almost any of the teams, minus like two. Now, maybe there's only three teams, and one of them's Team Liquid if you want to get paid millions. So he might have to go back. Who knows? Beggars can't be choosers. I mean, the whole LCS thing is going to be very interesting uh, this next year. Um it's so the, dumb, though, dude. It's so schedule changes dumb. and everything. They've literally invalidated everything that, as a fan, you were supposed to want from franchising. They didn't develop any talent. All they did was import. They imported to the extent only imports became the interesting factor. And now, what's the announcement? Less imports. Brilliant. Well done. Well done. So now, what? Here's a real question I have. Because by the way, I'm done with the whole idea that it's a major region. Why is LCS a major region aside from Riot being American? It's the only reason I can see left. Like, dude, look at what they did to fucking Taiwan. That's a disgrace. That that can't be a major region. But now, magically, LCS gets to be. For what reason? The joke, by the way, if you don't know fans, is if you actually did some sort of hard region lock and made all Taiwanese players play in the LMS, I guarantee LMS would be a better region than LCS. Yeah, for sure. And not least because they get to practice with bloody LPL. They actually and some of the LCK teams. So like it, it's got way more potential than LCS. And then on top of that, like I say, aside from imports, what does LCS have? That's it. That was the whole appeal. They let all those great players with the personalities disappear to streaming years ago. So like I don't even know what, what how am I supposed to get excited about LCS now? What's the angle? What's the sell? Yeah, and, and especially with them moving the days allegedly too and kicking it off the weekends for Valorant, which I'm sure, you know, they have some data that says that viewership will be higher there, but uh, I mean, without those, those LEC hosts, like I don't really understand how they are going to get those viewerships because the LEC hosts and raids on Twitch were a large chunk of, of LCS viewership to get them started. There were, I've said this before, but there were times when like PGL, the, the post show was going on LEC and it had like double the viewership of LCS and that had to end before they like dumped the viewers uh, from the player interviews into the actual live games that were going on. And people aren't going to know uh, that these dates have changed at first and they aren't going to react to their schedules. You know, personally, it's great for me to not have it on the weekends. I like that a lot, but it also has to be in a bad time zone for somebody uh, whether whether it's West Coast, if it starts early on, there's not going to be a crowd because it's California is going to start at like 1 p.m. or some shit uh, if they want to get European viewers. And if they start later, I mean, the latest they can start is 4 p.m. Pacific. That's 7 p.m. Eastern. There are five games that will go till midnight on the East Coast, and they can't push it much later than that. So, like, I don't really know. Like, the scheduling is going to be really rough. You're, somebody's going to get alienated in this schedule, uh, definitely. And as far as I know, and I've looked into this, there are no format changes coming to the LCS either. They're not doing anything differently besides moving the days, as far as I can tell. They might be, they might be changing some of the aesthetics and the production around it. Uh, they're certainly going to have fewer casters, I can tell you that right now. Uh, but yeah, they haven't, uh, they haven't announced actually 
any any major changes, nor do I think they're considering any kind of format changes. Meanwhile, we have the LEC format, which is going to be quite interesting. We actually didn't have a chance to talk about this on the show last week, so we can dive into that now if you want. But the LEC format, I think, is really interesting, right? Because it's solving a lot of the problems with deadbeat team and franchising. Like, if you are the bottom two, if you're a bottom two team for all three splits, well, you're only going to get, what, 27 guaranteed games? So you're going to get fewer games on stage than you have right now. And, by the way, they're using the LEC groups, and they're using the bracket. But the hilarious thing is they've, they've carved it into, like, a group stage into a playoff bracket, right? And they're doing it three times a year, which is exactly the same concept that OGN used to use that Riot crushed in 2015 because they thought the league format was better. So it's kind of outrageous that we're moving back to three mini tournaments, which was the entire thing that OGN had planned, but was told by Riot not to do anymore because it was bad and they wanted to shift the format. Like we never had to be in the league situation to begin with. I find this whole thing completely fucking ridiculous. I mean, I'm glad it's changing, but they, they, it's a tacit admission that this format that OGN would use in some form or another, obviously not one-to-one, um, but the concept was the solid concept that people are more excited about and wanted to go after. I mean, at least it means you get more actual playoff series and all that crap. So I yeah, don't really exactly. care. Like, by the way, I don't give a monkeys about the angle of like, oh, some team barely gets any games. I don't care about watching bad teams play. Remember, exactly. I'll tie it back into what I said before. If people had lived up to what they all promised when franchising came and every major region was 10 really cool sets of players, I'd be annoyed that you don't get to see many. I don't, I've seen the ninth and 10th teams in all these regions almost every year, minus that like summer 2021 or whatever origin was last place. They just trash the teams that are ninth and 10th. Like the joke is they're just, there to be the banana peel for the good teams. That's it. You basically just determines who comes first, second, or third, who loses to the ninth and tenth team. That's all they do as a function. They're not they're not good League of Legends, usually. Yeah, but that's I mean that's what's great is that we're gonna have the, you know two teams eliminated after the first round robin. Then we're gonna have what two more or four more teams eliminated before they hit the playoff bracket. So it's rewarding the good teams with more best of series, which the West definitely needs in terms of practice. And then more games, lots more games to the best team. If you're the best team, you're going to play far more games, which is going to be great because they're going to have significantly more experience as they head on to international stages. Like that, that to me is great. We get more games of the best teams and we, we get to cut out a lot of the bad teams, even a lot of the mediocre teams in the league, the longer this thing goes on. And it, it reaches a natural climax. Um, I mean, I think I think all of this is a is a positive sign. Like, I would like it to be even more extreme. But here's the thing: they sold the franchises, so they have to provide people a minimum number of games so that they have a guaranteed number to sell sponsors against. Which is why, you know, it's designed the way it is. You have to make that compromise. Now, I think the other point of that is is like it would be great if we had ten competitive teams. But yes, this, it would be great, but you have to incentivize the teams to do well. The problem for the teams is that the monetization system is fucking broken in, in esports, but in League of Legends specifically in this way. Talked about this before. The teams never understand how successful esports is as a marketing tool. They, Riot shares no information with the teams about skin sales uh, you know, after matches if a player plays the skin. 
it is hard to quantify these things because you can't always know the effect of that marketing, but surely they have some ballpark idea of the value of esports. I don't think they would be spending the literal hundreds of millions of dollars that they spend on the world championship if they thought it was losing them hundreds of millions of dollars. Clearly they have some idea that they sell a lot of skins and engage fans and keep them playing the game and buying skins by running esports events. But that data is hidden in a secret vault at Riot that probably only a few executives have access to. So the teams don't get much of in terms of the in-game revenue. Now, our ecosystem is also broken and Twitch has a monopoly, so we can't sell media rights to anybody. Nobody is paying for it after that $100 million from the Overwatch League. So what does that leave? We just have sponsors and venture capital and $10 worth of merch that is sold. And that's it. So the teams are not incentivized by Riot to be good because the, the business of being a team is bad. So yes, I would like more competitive teams as well, but Riot hasn't helped themselves through this ecosystem they developed where they give away the product for free to the fans. They give it away and they can't sell media rights and they will not disclose or share much of the revenue that they make from the esports the e marketing exercises. That is the reason why in Valorant, they switched to a different model, which is pay the teams directly. We don't, we don't receive money from you. We pay you to run a Valorant roster and be our Valorant partner. And that's because we recognize that this is a marketing exercise that we have to pay for. So Valorant should be much more competitive. I actually like the new Valorant circuit. I think that the ideas are good that they're implementing there. I mean, what's the connection between the two though? Like why would they move League of Legends for a game that the majority of League of Legends fans will never watch? Riot are just idiots, mate. They don't know what esports... They think esports is sitting for eight hours watching eight different teams play. Like, you're not a fan... Seven of them that you're not a fan of. And then going, oh, is that done now? Well, the... the like, time for Valorant while well, watch another ten teams, that, that nine of which I'm not a fan of play. Like, there's no sport in the world works this way. The maddest part about it is they're all supposedly NFL fucking fanatics. The NFL doesn't even work that way. Nobody, nobody would watch the fucking NFL if to get to the good game, you had to sit through watching, like, a past season of the Detroit Lions or something, or when the Giants and shit or something. Nobody would do that. It's... There's no fan of the sport, American football, like that. They're fans of American football via their favourite team, their favourite player, their alma mater or something, or their state team. Nobody's just a fan of the entire fucking NFL. That doesn't even exist. That's just yeah, a mad I mean, concept. Nobody's watching all the games unless, you know, unless you're like a professional analyst of the NFL. I mean, the closest anybody comes is watching Red Zone, right? Where you can watch all the big moments in the game simultaneously. Or maybe you catch like your favorite team or the match of the week that they flex into, you know, Sunday night football or Monday night football. That a lot of people watch. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, it's true. Like you're not going to go back and watch all the film of the five games that were happening simultaneously in the early window on Sunday, right? Like that's ridiculous. So, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, it's, it is it is really difficult sometimes because the, all the people who are sports fans, which I have no idea. Like, if you just think about the thing, the cringe shit that they used to say, like, 
oh yeah, you know, I, I came into esports because, and like, I'm an NFL fan, therefore I know what's best for esports. It's like such an insane statement to make that being a fan of something means that you know how to operate a sports business. But they came in with zero esports experience and did that and led us to, the, they led us down this path that we're on right now where they have to admit that the formats are bad because finally viewership has caught up with them and they need to make changes. But we could have had nice things from the beginning. Right, we could have had nice things from the beginning, and thinking that these same people who definitely don't go back and watch all those NFL games every week, right, despite being NFL fans, um, they expect that of the viewers, which is crazy. There's just there's too much. There's I've said this before, but there's there's an insane amount of oversaturation within the League of Legends esports world right now, where it's impossible for people, even whose jobs are watching the games, to watch all the games. Like that that can't be allowed. You know, that's just too much. There's too much going on globally. Uh, there's too many. There's too many different regions. There has to be some level of consolidation if you believe that you should watch all of the games, as their actions seem to imply that you should, right? And their words seem to imply that you should. And also, the only reason you're making changes. This is why they're so stupid. You're not making changes because it's awesome and you want to improve the league. You're making changes because the viewership shit. Yep. So what that means is, by the way, think that through, fans. That means if the viewership stayed really good, their assumption was we just had the best format, which actually implies the opposite. What it implies is there might be a world where if this format's better, they could have had double the viewership all those years. I've always said this. Fans will never understand it. I actually think at the end of the history of League of Legends, it will be one of the most misused and underutilized games in the history of esports relative to the amount of spend and the potential what you could have done with that like global audience like we've never seen in any other esport including overwatch and all the other big games csgo dota nobody has this opportunity that riot has and what they are is like it's like i always say they're the guy whose dad gave them like a million dollars and then they fucked away like a 200k and they were like we're still got 800k it's more than you bit you poor bitch and you're yeah. like oh yeah i guess but like you could have had millions from that couldn't you if you'd have fucking invested it or done a business or something right or, or it's like, you know, they, they gave somebody a million dollars and they invested it and may, and got up to $5 million. But if they had been smarter about investing, it could have been $100 million. You know what I mean? And they're like, yeah, I did it. I made $4 million. But it's like, yes, but if you had invested in a different, in Amazon stock early, you would be much richer than you are right now. I mean, it is, it is kind of a, a missed opportunity, but at least some of this stuff is getting fixed. And also, um, I'll just throw this in there. When we always bang on about why don't they change the format of Worlds? Well, based on this logic, I think it's because the viewership for Worlds is still fine. That's even stupider. Because here's the dumbest thing about Riot refusing to do a better format for Worlds and or double elimination, right? If you didn't pay attention, guys, to those industry reports where it says, like, the number of viewers and you see the metrics they use, it used to just be concurrent peak viewers. That was the golden number that everyone wanted to sell for years now it's been total hours watched or something ridiculous yeah. like that well spoiler you're going to get even more hours watched with a double limb tournament so that also <laughs> means that by their own logic they're just leaving money on the table with worlds like you'd not only have by the way we'd all love it we'd have better matches more matches all the matchups you want to see you'd also just get the key metrics everyone wants even bigger because there's another thing I find so underwhelming it's like they're this many years into League of Legends with all the regions built up now should be by the way where no one can even come close to you like ti shouldn't even be in the same building they don't even have career involved for fuck's sake like the and barely is a thing like there should be a point now where like you should be just 
this is like afterburners at this point in time. You should be doing numbers no one's ever seen in the history of anything. This should be where the joke is. Ten years in, you would actually. We all laughed at them back then, but in theory, if you had been having this growth that was possible, you actually would. You wouldn't be the NFL, but you would actually be on real sports level, though. Like some of the sort of middling sports, you'd maybe be able to like take a peek past them. Not the skewed ones where they take like Wimbledon only on like BBC on this. You know those ones where they do that angle to make it sound like it's bigger. Obviously not those. I mean for real. By now it should have been able to grow to that point. Yeah. And look, it would cost more to do double elimination, but you could easily offset that by not going to four different cities during Worlds because the immense cost of moving, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people around, switching out your sets, changing the arenas and everything like that. It's just not worth it to have this live audience. And you would sell out no matter where you were. If you were in one location at the same time, you would still have the same crowd numbers. It's an event. People would fly in. People flew to fucking Korea. Hundreds of, of foreigners flew from all over the world to go to Worlds in Korea in 2014. That was, it's just something people do. And that, you know, they'll fly internationally for this shit and they'll certainly fly domestically or within their own home continent in the case of Europe, right? So you don't have to move this thing around. You can take those costs and apply them to a few more broadcast days during the bracket. And then that, that solves your problem right there. Like in the short term, it would cost more, more money to do it that way. And they've already sold the sponsorship, so they're not going to get more money from those particular sponsors. But you can not move it you can then do double a limb at the same, or probably close to the same cost. Then you get the bigger numbers and you sell it for the next, the next series, right? As, as a higher value sponsorship, like you're saying. And then you actually end up making more money, I think. Just, I think we're going to see probably changes next year. Um, as I think Riot was massively over budget in terms of esports this year, both in Valorant and, and in, in League of Legends. And so I, I think the, cut, the cuts are coming, guys, and I'll be interested to see what they do for the international circuits uh, next year in terms of these changes. All right. Uh, shall we bring Wolf on and actually talk about the semifinals? Yeah, but what I would say is this, is obviously with eSports Bet, they do offer the bet forgiveness on the first crypto deposit. So since what they do is, I've your first ever bet up to 100 USDT. If you lose, then you can just go to the Discord, discord.gg slash esportsbet, message the mod mail and say, last free nation sent you, and they will credit your account with up to the 100 USDT that you staked. Now, the reason I mention this now is because since DRX is in the final and nobody even thought they were making worlds, they're a massive underdog. So this would actually be, by the way, if you're a DRX believer, and by the way, on paper, if you can beat Gen G, in theory, you can win worlds now. Like, it's not like it's even totally implausible. This would actually be a perfect time to potentially use the bet on DRX if you're a fan because if you win you will get something like Monty said like five times the amounts you won't need to bet the bet right now and if you oh, lose they've gone down a little bit it's 3.477 as still of right way more now. than 100 so the point is <laughs> you lose you get the 100 back anyway and if you win you would get 300 something whatever in this particular case yeah. <laughs> so yep good good time to do it that's for sure uh, all right, guys, let's take a little break. Uh, we'll bring Wolf on and uh, we'll get to talking about the amazing Zeka, everybody's favorite new player. Right, we're back and our guest is Wolf. Yeah, he was on the last episode, but whatever. It's just Wolf on his own for this one. So here's the question I have. There's no Yamato extra box to come in, right? The first topic we have to discuss, actually, I think goes like this. Isn't Worlds on some level semi-ruined for you now, Wolf? Like, it was sort of all about Gen G was going to 
parlay the dominance of that split into a world, into like Chovy gets the title. Like so many narratives and threads were going to come together. Hasn't it sort of scoffed worlds a bit what happened in the semifinals yesterday? I think for sure, like now that Genji is out, um, it ruins a lot of the potential narratives of We've we've had Dom one rival T one's uh, legacy right. We've had the we had the twenty twenty one where there was a lot of discussion about Dom one's dominance after winning worlds and are they going to win worlds again? Are we going to actually start to have the conversation of back to back worlds titles with an amazing undefeated run basically in, in LCK as well that year? Um, looking at like okay, can this team challenge T one's legacy? They failed. They didn't win worlds. They had a rocky start to this year. They lost in, in uh, the quarterfinals here. Unfortunate bad matchup. I think we could have had them in the finals if they were on the other side of the bracket, potentially. Um, and now Genji is another one of those teams that like could potentially, you know, in, in several years, like it, maybe by the end of next year, we can have that conversation again if they won Worlds and then they continue to dominate next year like Dom1 did. We'd be like, oh, okay, is this team now going to be one that can rival T1, uh, SK Telecom's uh, legacy? And now that they're out and they choked again as genji always does in these high pressure moments just like they did last year against edg um those narratives are gone you know for for the time being at least right and that's one thing i'm kind of sad about because we we could have had a world where peanut goes and, and wins a world's title um and he's getting older now obviously in terms of esports right I know a lot of people think like to say, well, Baker's older too, and it doesn't matter your age. It actually does matter, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's getting closer to military age and stuff like that. He's the last Rocks Tiger player who's, who's still um, playing. Uh, all the other ones have transitioned to streaming or casting. So it is a bit sad in that way. Um, and, I mean, there's obviously a lot of cool narratives on the DRX side as well, but uh, we did lose a lot, I think, in terms of what we could talk about in terms of rivaling that SKAT um, legacy. Yeah, because to me, this is like equivalent. I would give the analogy of if you want to go back to 2020 for the tournament you're talking about with the first damn one win, which is, look, it was cool within the tournament that the Sooning team turned out to be really good and won all those games, went to the final and actually even gave them a game in the final. But the problem was you spent the whole circuit in league building up narratives. So you had the narratives of like, right, JDG and top esports. Like they're the two teams, they have different styles of play. And then the whole thing is Sooning just snuck in there like the RX did, like at the end in the regional, came through. And then what they did is they killed everyone else's storyline. And this is also, I've made this point a million times, but I'll make it again. This is why I hate underdogs. Like, just because I made that yep. video where I touched y'all and got into you and made the fucking onions, the little tear, oh, death, yeah, it is sad. Don't worry, I didn't want death to win because all the fucking narratives minus death, they're just whack. Like, guess what? It isn't that cool if, like, Beryl's the first one to win, like, two titles out of the damn one players. That's, like, the least cool possible storyline. Similarly, right, in this scenario, like, you actually want the great players to win because they're the stories that we're really following in esports. So, when, ups, when underdogs win, because they are underdogs for a reason, they have a really bad habit of then just doing really badly at the end of the tournament. So the problem I have is this, Wolf. Everyone's going to go, no, it's great, because if they play the way they did there, like I just said, if you can play like you did it against EDG and Dampon, uh, Genji, you could win the whole thing, right? Yeah, there's also a world where... Cinderella effect takes place. The, all the fucking carriage turns back and all pumpkin. Zeka just goes, wait a minute, I actually can only really play like two and a half champions. And they just get three zeros clapped. And it's just a boring-ass final. Whereas, like, look, even if somehow that happened with Gen G, tell you what, the drama of it would have been way bigger. Like, dude, imagine if, like, Gen G just failed in the final. That would be even a bigger storyline than now. So, like, that's the problem with underdog wins for me always. Is like, I just don't feel like they can carry it on and do it, you know. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I will say, unlike the Sooning thing, where it was like literal who's, you know, as far as these players were concerned at the time when they came to the world stage, at least, I, I agree with it, but at least this underdog has deft and barrel on it, uh, yeah. which makes it, for for somebody who may not be involved in, in modern League of Legends, but who has watched off and on over the years, at least those two names should be familiar and exciting for people. Um, barrel is now... If, I, if I'm not wrong about this, I think the fourth player who's had three back-to-back -back Worlds Finals appearances yeah. because Faker, Bang, and Wolf yes. also did this. Um, so now Barrel back is to back to back. Yeah. Uh, back to back. Back-to-back. Three in a row, back. you meant. Yeah. Three in a row, that's right. Uh, because uh, Dom won's 2020 win, his Finals appearance in 2021, and now on DRX, he's got a third Finals in a row. Uh, so that's a really cool storyline uh, that we have now. My problem with underdog stories like this is... The finals are probably going to be bad. Um, everyone remembers Afrika going to the finals a few years ago in the LCK as well. It was like, wow, it's Afrika in the finals. That's really cool. And then they get absolutely stomped in the finals. It makes it very difficult to do compelling narratives about how the finals will be exciting because as an analyst, you have to say, okay, well, T1 is definitely favored here, unfortunately, even though DRX massively overperformed. Genji underperformed. We can, we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, sure. Um, but then you, you want to have this fairy tale storyline of if it happened or it could happen, and everyone doubted DRX before, <laughs> but the numbers and the eye test don't really back up this theory. So it's really hard to get people excited about, wow, Deft versus Faker, except it's going to be a stomp. Uh, and so from a narrative perspective, I think it's way less interesting to hype this one up because if you go if you go the other way t1 versus gen g for example which is the expected finals rematch of the summer finals except it's a good meta for t1 except t1 look good in this meta so it's actually their chance for revenge and there's all these other storylines where it's compelling you can actually look at the numbers and look at the lane stats and actually talk about the matchups and the meta in a way that favors both teams and why it would be actually compelling finals that could go to five games you can't do that unfortunately for t1 versus drx at the moment sure Right, what, what do you want then? Should we just do the DRX talk now and we'll jump into Gen G later and bemoan them? Uh, before we get into that, if you guys have just tuned in for the guest segment of the show, want to remind you that Last Free Nation, Wolf and I, and Digon will be in San Francisco at the Chase Center at Harmonic, uh, Harmonic Brewing Thrive City. Uh, it will we'll be streaming it on Twitch as well. You don't need tickets. Just come on by. We'll be doing live pregame content. We will be doing a watch party with, I think, like seven, like I said, like six or seven 55-inch TVs, both inside the bar, outside on the patio as well. We'll have three or four TVs. Um, and so if you don't have a ticket to Worlds, you can watch. We'll be there the whole time. And we'll have a party afterwards, so come by for beers. We're going to be giving away free merchandise. There will be content to watch, pre-game stuff to do, on stream. Thorne will call in. We'll have other guests call in. Uh, free drinks for we'll have drink tickets to give out and stuff like that so do come by in, in san francisco it's going to be a very very good time you excited yes i am <laughs> we've been we've been excited about this for a while we haven't been able to share anything about it just yet so glad it's finally out there uh okay so you want to talk about drx now because that's the that's the hype that that everybody's going on i think we have to talk about like the zeka versus chovy angle later because that's the latest drama i guess is like calling chovy bad for some reason he was kind of bad in, in the match, but uh, 
Uh, I think- the, the, the angle on that that I'll never get over is they can never state their own argument in an appropriate way. Like if people said this, this is a pretty good angle. If people just said, you guys tell me, because you could just say the same about Knight if you don't watch the LPL. If you told me every year, you guys tell me this guy's like the best mid laner not to win world. Like, and then he comes to world, so he doesn't do anything. Great conversation starter. Now we can talk about like performance anxiety, like what happens maybe when they play people who aren't from their region that are not familiar. We can have all these, but it's always free this way ah see the whole time he was never good it's like oh that's that's the one narrative that cannot be true is it you idiots these people are the mvps they're the guys where week to week they're like unbelievable eye tests like that's the one angle cannot be the case on chauvy isn't it like but no one fake like, it wasn't fake news no one like fucking manipulated the stats on the lane in for chauvy for like four years or something like it is real he was fucking amazing it's just by the way we'll get into this later he just has a problem in, in fucking pressure games apparently but it's a totally different scenario from you were never good. What's really interesting about that is I feel like Zeka is, has been put in the high-pressure games, the highest pressure he's ever been put in in his career, and he actually finally, like, popped out of the jack-in-the-box. Like, for Zeka, I've been, for so long, I've been told, this guy is better than his stat show. He's really good. I believe he was on Billy Billy Gaming when he was in China. Everyone's like, no, this guy's actually top tier. He's so young. He's got so much potential. The potential, Zeka's potential, potential, potential. And I'm watching him, casting him, and I'm like, this guy's not even a top five mid laner for most of the year. And it's like, everyone is just doing the jack-in-the-box, like, crank, like, still cranking. Like, don't worry, he's going <laughs> to pop out. And I'm like, we're still cranking, right? Like, I don't know, he's never going to come out. Like, and then suddenly he, he comes to Worlds, and it feels like he's doing better and better as, as these series progress, and as they become more important, and as be- they become more unrealistic, it's like he's he's actually had his time to shine, right? And... I think he's loving it. I think he's loving playing in front of a massive crowd like this, which he's never done before. I, I think he's loving the the pressure and the what he can achieve. Obviously, which he's not expected to do is is just is allowing him to overperform from a psychological standpoint. Obviously, as mentioned earlier, I think his champion pool is very weak. Um, he's very similar to Closer, the mid laner he used to play for behind Faker for T1. Now is on Live Sandbox, where he has a very small champion pool. His strengths are melee champions and assassins. He hasn't really been able to do well in a control mage meta. But when it's like, is your Akali, Silas, that's it. There are three mid champions, uh, <laughs> plus Victor, which he is not good at, but he doesn't have to play. And Ari. He's a good Ari. And he's being given R5 Akali into Chovy's Azir, which is underperforming. Yeah, he's going to look good. He's going to look great. And he's popped out of the jack of the box. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's not minimizing Zeka's performance because we had an interesting conversation on, on our watch party with Papa. And Papa brought up a great point, which is like, has um you know has there ever been a glow up like Zekka's at Worlds like a player that came in and, and like flourished so much or like seemingly improved to such a large degree and we were having we were having a tough time like coming up with that because it would have to be a relatively unknown player who just yeah, like, caught fire. It could also be Huan Feng from Suni. Sure. He had a pretty yeah, good pop off. That. that was a good one. Yeah, uh, we There's talked not many other that. than that though for sure. Um. And so it, you know, it it's been a very impressive performance, and it's not to diminish it's not to diminish uh, Zeka in any way because he, I mean, what's so incredible about the the matchup that he had was that he basically just owned Chovy and Lane four games in a row, which, if anything, you expect that world class top tier dominance and laning from Chovy. Chovy has always had other flaws, which are mostly macro flaws, and knowing how to coordinate and communicate where he should be on the map. But a lot of that was fixed up until this match. It looked, he looked like he like reverted to old Chovy. It was so fucking weird. Yeah, so that was that was a lot of what we were talking about uh, during our watch party was 
is this Hanwha Life Esports Chovy like back back from the dead basically because we saw him in side lanes. His build uh, in that final Azir game where he went for Nasher's Tooth really indicated that he wanted to split push and actually get farm as quickly as possible and then be kind of a battle Azir. When he needed, what he needed in reality was probably a crown build, which we all agreed on in our watch party. Be like he's not going to do as much damage in longer fights, but he is going to survive better and he'll be able to make sure he has a good ult appeal for um, for ruler. And he didn't play that way and often wasn't even in the fights and was pushing uh, mid or pushing top and actually not joining for fights. And it was really reminiscent of, of some of the games we saw from him in Worlds last year and also his time on Honda Life Esports. The relationship between Chovy and Peanut all year long was insanely good. They were on the same page. I was shocked that how quickly they actually became an insane mid-jungle uh, duo. And they played well together all year long. And this is the first time that Chovy looked like he was playing with Willer again, or playing with Johan again from Hunter Life Esports, where he's just like, yeah, just, just do what I want for my lane, protect me, sacrifice yourself to actually give me more money, and then I'll carry. Uh, it was like that type of attitude we were seeing from Chovy again. Felt like to me, especially in those final two games, start of the series, whatever. Um, and yeah, you could say he, he underperformed this tournament. I think we, we can all say that. He didn't live up to expectations, but... It was not like what we saw from him in quarters and in groups is nothing like what we saw from him in that semifinal match uh, last night. So it, it feels weird to me as someone who's watched Chovy play for a long time and watched him throughout DRX and Hanwha Life Esports where he had a fairly weak team around him and didn't get to have the same impact he had on Gen G. But then when Gen G looks like it's falling apart and Peanut underperforms, you could really feel how Chovy struggles to actually figure out what to do in these games where they're behind and he doesn't actually have full control. I mean, even yeah. just that like fail flash he did, like you will never see something like that from Chovy in a normal game. Yeah, the rise flash was, everyone's talking about that because it was just so bizarre. And I think the reasoning behind that is he wants to make sure he can run more away in the safest way possible because he doesn't have vision of where anyone is above him um, around the blue buff there on red side. So he's really like just trying to make as much distance as possible, but you know, with the like cost benefit analysis of this, like you you lose your flash there is actually way like without knowing that anyone's there necessarily is just a panic reaction. And like the the idea is okay, well if I get out safe it's worth it, but I don't know if they're there, they could be there, I might die. And if I don't flash here, like maybe I'll die. But the way he flashed and the timing of which he flashed, it just it just didn't make sense. I mean he just you could tell he's just really on edge and like a lot of his old habits were coming out again. And it you know, one of the stories of Chovy from this year, which unfortunately is is kind is kind of dashed by this, is that he had changed his playstyle pretty significantly. And you know, Wolf and I talked about it a lot on our show, like, is this a result of the, you know, score coaching or peanut coming in and being like the leader and shot caller on this roster? Because he was he was paying much more attention to the map. He was playing with his teammates, but I mean, he went back to just like one man heroing it. And you didn't even get the good parts of Chovy in that case, which was winning lane. So you got like all of the bad parts and then also he lost lane. Like it was a, it was a very poor performance from him, but it, it, that can't be allowed to undo this absolutely fantastic year that he had for the most part. I mean, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a very dark mark at the very end. And uh, unfortunately that's what goes into your memory is how this ended, well, <laughs> but he wasn't playing like this in summer guys. Like I, I, it was, it was very odd to watch this unfold. So live. He said something really cool in his interview um, at the end and you know, Jason didn't fully translate the last part of this. And I, I may have misheard because we were all talking here and I didn't have the perfect audio, but what I heard him say at the end of his losers interview um, that right where, where he was very composed by the way, was 
um, his last words to the fans was, this has been like my most amazing year, um, but it's really sad that like I had my worst day as a player at the end of what was like my best year. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of his final message to the fans. And I think that he knows he underperformed and it weighs on him heavily. Um, and like, he basically summed up everything you just said in that like last sentence, like best year of my life, but worst day of my life at the end of it. The last day of my best year is like the worst day of my life. You know, that's not directly what he said, but that's the meaning I oh. think, of what he was saying. And it, it's, that's the tragedy of it all is like, it'll be a big mar on his career. Like he, he will be like his entire year, which was incredible in his best year. And as you said, changed his play style, et cetera. All the things people criticized him for, you couldn't see them anymore until he went back to old Chovy in this really critical moment. It's reminiscent to me of BDD on Gen G last year where he came in the clutch. Like he was actually playing so well in that series until he overdid the clutch and then like actually flashed forward and died and, and made a lot of mistakes and they ended up losing that series. Um, both BDD and Chovy choking big time for Gen G back to back, completely different mid laners, completely different play styles, but both of them actually having the best and worst um, of themselves, I think, in these really important semifinals. Yeah. One, I mean, one of the things, by the way, that on this topic that I think we have to set up is we will get to all the DRX hype later and all the great things they did. But this really was like, it, what, here's the problem I have with this series. This is what, this is a classic example of where I'm not a huge fan of underdog wins. Because if this is like the underdog just came in and they played an amazing series and the other team was really good and they just beat them straight up, then actually I'd be super hyped for the DRX in the final. I'd be like, fuck it, maybe they do just beat T1 if they beat Gen G like that. But the problem is, remember how this series began? Not how it ended. It began, the first game was just easy. Genji just fucking toasted them. Then it looked like they were in an almost un-fucking-losable un scenario in game two. So they it looked they're like one and a half games up, as it were. And now everyone's talking about, is this is going to be a boring 3-0? Like, the draft was shit from the... Are they even going to have... A, like Are they just out of options? Was that like a gamble draft or something? Like, at that point in time, then you have all these mistakes. You have all the... Like, one thing is, from that... Like, one and a half games into this series... Did Genji ever have a good team fight? It didn't feel like it. It felt like they could never group properly. They never fought properly. They were literally doing stuff like just using like summoners and TPs to just watch a dragon be taken without contesting it, then walk away. It's like the whole thing was like, I have to say this, as much as the RX caught the throw, what a choke job this was in general from Genji. Yeah, and it wasn't, you know, you can talk about Chovy as much as you like, but Chovy actually played well for most of Worlds. Like, I, you, you have to look at Peanut, I think, because Peanut was getting clapped by Canyon in the last series. You know, he comes into this series, he basically just straight up loses game two for them by being just an idiot on Graves and getting caught out multiple times in a game where they had a pretty, in my opinion, like, sizable draft advantage that they had, they had accrued. Like, I, I think, like... If you if you look at if you look at that second game, you're really happy with the draft that that they have. Yeah, Pioshik pulls out the Kindred into the Grays, but they would have been expecting that. Um, you know, they they should have had you know a great time with Chovy on Silas in the mid lane. The Varus and Karma combo is ex the Karma support is extremely strong into the into Caitlyn because it basically counteracts her shove, and that's the the most valuable part of Caitlyn is shoving and then getting plates getting early priority on objectives, and then transitioning that into knocking down all the towers on the map. It's, it's kind of like the, you have to, but you have to hit the first domino in order for that to happen. And if you can't hit the first domino because you have a Varus 
that's clearing out the like a lethality Varus that can clear waves from a fuck long way away with a Karma, then you can't ever start that process, right? And they don't really, with this composition, have a lot of win conditions outside of Peanut like choking and Kingen, to be fair. Kingen also was really good on the Gragas that game, hitting a lot of barrels uh, and making Ruler's life very, very difficult, plus some insane plays from Zekka. But you have you see, like, everybody's like, oh yeah, that Zekka charm. But that's what you have to do to win against this oh, composition. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't have to... That's not a reliable thing to, like, think that I'm going to get this insane long-range engage onto a Varus with this team... Flash, a, a Varus with Flash and yeah. is running cleanse. I don't think he had cleanse in that moment, but it, it's hard. It's really <laughs> hard. It's really hard, guys. And it was really Genji's misplays. But, uh, you know, the four of us were sitting here on, on doing this watch party being like, oh, God, like... Papa, Papa was going off on this. He was, he was like, he was like, it's doomed. He was like, it's doomed. He was like, it, you know, coming from the team side, he was saying like, oh yeah, if 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 this was if this was a coach, the coach would be apologizing at the end of the draft, being like, sorry guys, I put you in this situation. This is really really hard. Uh, you know, good luck with it. I'll do better next time. Like, it, you know, it was bad. I think and at, I, I I agreed with a lot of Papa's takes on that front. At the end of at the end of the day, I was shocked that. Genji in that final game put Chovy after his performance in, in game three in particular on Rise. They put him on the Azir with a Kali counterpick for Zekka up, his best champion by far, by a large margin. And they were like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. They'll bait him into it, right? Yeah. And like, it, it's tough because you, you, you had the really bad Rise performance earlier. The champion pool right now is not very wide for mid laners. And it just felt like it all fell apart in the draft there at the end. And didn't feel unwinnable by any means, and Chovy is the guy who wins the counter matchups. That's what he does. He was the first Azir player to beat Silas in the LCK Summer, and it was on like a nine and zero for Silas into Azir. He made it nine and one and won on the uh, the Silas or rather the Azir into the Silas matchup. Like that's what he does. Um, but he he got totally outclassed this time, and some of the stuff we saw in the draft was very concerning and questionable for DRX at times, and I think T1, because they have a massive champion pool in this meta right now, will completely dismantle them in that regard. But I think both teams really didn't play to their best, and Papa said something really funny um, at the end of Game 1's draft, but he was like, I think both of these teams wish they had the other draft in terms of their playstyle, <laughs> because that was just how it went, right? It was like the mind game of trying to deny things actually made them swap sides in the first game. But that didn't actually extend into the, the rest of the series. Peanut's deaths on Graves, those two deaths, was what cost them that game. It lost them the momentum. He was running an Eclipse build, so he wasn't as tanky, I think, as he thought he was. He was just, like, greeting for Raptors and vision control around there the first time he was picked. And I think that was the moment where if you're Chovy and Peanut's choking and he's messing this up, like, you lose confidence in your jungler. And if you lose confidence in your jungler... Like, psychologically, you're just like, I can't trust Peanut's going to do the right thing. Then you start thinking, well, I have to carry this. If you're if you're of the mindset like Chovy, it's almost like a, a mental drug where you're like, I can do this now. I'm going to get the minions. I'm going to side lane. I'm going to get the money, and I'm going to carry, like, kind of thing. And I think Chovy got into that mindset. He's like, well, Peanut's not going to do it. I have to do it today. And, like, that's a really unhealthy mindset to have in a best of five like that, where you lose confidence in your jungler. And maybe that's something that some of the issues we talked about in terms of yep. egos on this team and how many resources all these players had on their individual teams before they formed, actually showing up at a big best of five here where, you know, if Peanut can't calm Chovy down or actually get into Chovy's mind space and be like, no, 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 trust me, like, I, I messed that up, but, like, we're going to win this, like, and they can calm down and figure that out, then 
That's how you lose a best yeah, of five like look, that. Yeah, and I think I think the mentality probably took a massive hit too because you're coming from this game where you should have felt extremely confident that you were going to win if you were Gen G, right? Peanut kind of fucks it up. Okay, so let's go to the next game. They actually have a very good draft here, I think, where they take the Sejuani early. They they actually just basically force DRX to pick Orn because if DRX doesn't pick Orn, then Genji's going to pick Orn and just play Sejuani in jungle. So they pick Orn and then they flex the Sejuani to the top lane and take Trundle. So you're like, oh, okay, this is looking like really good. Like we have an extremely strong front to back team fighting style with Sejuani, Trundle, Azir, Ezreal, and Karma. We're feeling super good about this. We switched to the Ezreal so that Ruler had even less of a chance. Because I actually mentioned after the first game that I thought they should have. I think they, I thought they should have played Ezreal instead of Varus and accomplished much of the same thing, because Ezreal Karma is a, a known, very good lane into, into Caitlyn Lux as well. So they make these transitions, you're like, okay, like we're doing this. And then what happens? Doran just feeds his little face off in, in, the, in the next game. So you, you go from peanut throwing to Doran, and we were talking about this as well. Why is he on Ignite in this game? Yeah, it doesn't like, make sense. He's not going to kill the Orn. Like, there's no point in taking Ignite take the flash and, and play safe in the laning phase, and they completely run it down in top lane and get this massive disadvantage, and then all of a sudden, Chovy's just not even there when they're, the rest of this team's trying to fight around the mid lane, and they're making mistakes. They could just take the mid lane turret instead of even going to that fight in and the first And Flash on Sejuani is really strong because it extends your engage range as well. Like, it's not it's not amazing in lane, generally speaking, and the, the Ignite is the more common one, especially if you have a lane partner that can empower you and get your passive. Like, Viego is extremely good at this, um, and... You know, it's one of the reasons why Sejuani is so strong with a lot of uh, junglers right now in this meta, even as a top laner. I mean, she became a more jungle champ towards the end of things, but now, you know, still flex the to top. But Flash extends your engage range, so it's not like you're losing a whole lot. You have more survivability top against dives, and you're going to be able to do, make bigger plays later on. And, and you have to understand, like, Genji's play style for this year, because people are memeing on them of, like, oh, Chovy's in top lane farming while a dragon's taking place. That's literally their play style. That's how they were the best team <laughs> in the world in summer, because they weren't fighting every fucking stupid dragon on the map. They were making a choice of funneling gold into Chovy, okay? Like, that's how they play. You just have to understand that they have been very efficient. This is how, if you watched game one, or some of the, actually, I think it was game two, you see them basically through lane assignments deny a fuck ton of CS into the enemy and like shoot up by like 800 or 1,000 gold over the period of two minutes where no other action's happening except they're just out farming DRX on the map and they're forcing them into really bad lane assignments. Like, um, yeah, I mean, they forced them into, you yeah. know, super bad lane assignments in the first they game. They were splitting the old top, lane swapped in a bad place. Yeah. Deft is alone against a Fiora and dies. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, they clapped them with that style. You just have to understand how they play. Now, a big problem, which I don't think any, but anybody's brought up yet either, is that so much of their play style revolves around having mid-priority because Chovy is so good at laning. You have to understand that this team is built around having constant mid-pressure and then Peanut being able to like buttress the and gank into the side lanes, okay? But having that priority allows Peanut, it's like a jungle paradise, man. It allows you so much freedom to do whatever the fuck you want and to really, like, Think about where you can apply the pressure or react to the enemy jungler very effectively. 
And because Chovy got dumpstered four games in a row in lane, their entire style just falls the fuck apart at that point in time. Especially when Zekka is fed and Chovy then can't safely side lane with the side lane build he's chosen because he will just be assassinated 1v1. Um, so he can't even get the side lane farm that he wants. So he's taking any opportunity he can to sneak away from a team fight for a moment, get one more wave in mid and, and stuff like that, which doesn't translate to a win if not everyone's on the same page and you're falling behind. and. It was just desperation. It's a, it's a really tragic story, and I think it's one that um, we're going to be talking about in LCK all year long. Um, you know, anytime anything like this happens in playoffs this year, like say Genji chokes another spring uh, playoffs, like they lose in the first round or something like that, we're going to be like, oh, it's just like the World Semifinals. It's just like the World Semifinals last time. Um, and I think these, there's going to be a big weight on Peanut and Chovy's shoulders, and, and D Doran's as well, to be honest. Um, but it feels like he's always cut that. Uh, for, for the next year of play. And I don't think we'll see Genji return to dominant form in spring. I think it's going to take time. Um, Doran, you know, had a similar performance in the spring finals uh, of LCK where they were actually dominated by T1, where he played Akshan and just was completely destroyed, right? And yep. he's a very emotional player. So you, Chovy loses confidence in his jungler. He is underperforming. Doran gets emotional. And all you have left is Ruler who's like, I'm trying my damnedest, man. <laughs> Well, you put me up against this better quality. Exactly. Uh, and I think, the, I think their coaching staff did a really good job of, of these drafts. I mean, like, I think that their game plan in game number one of taking the Silas first pick, because as much as, as, much as, um, as, much as Zekka plays Azir, he's not actually a very good Azir player. That's, yeah, that's the thing people have to remember about Zekka. Um, and most people don't watch the LCK don't know this, because in their mind, they're like, oh, Zekka's the new hero, he's the new anime protagonist of my worlds. Um, because I think a lot of people who don't watch LCK, and after the Western teams are beaten, they're like, okay, well, I'll give these Asian teams a chance, right? Like, I think a lot of people are like, not just going to turn it off because there's, there's no white people in, in, the, in the semis, right? They're going to be like, oh, okay, like, I, I watch LCS, I watch LEC. I mean, it's Faker versus Def, so everybody's going to watch it. Everybody's going to watch it. <laughs> but I think a lot of people are like, I've never heard of this Sekka guy before. I bet he was the greatest hot shit in LCK because I saw this semifinals, and I bet he's like the greatest player who ever lived. Why aren't people talking about him versus Faker? Why are they talking about Def versus Faker? It's because Zekka was, frankly, not even a top five mid laner for most of the year. He was even behind Closer and Vikla at the end of LCK summer. This was a sixth place team. And Zekka never had performances like this in uh, best of fives or in playoffs before. Now, he had had some amazing Akali games throughout his uh, time in the LPL and in the LCK. It was his best champion by far, but he never had the moment where he could actually carry with it on an international stage in front of a giant crowd and actually pop off in a, a game like this that has this much um, importance, right? Because in a best of three against like a freak of freaks and he pops off with the Akali, like, Okay, cool. We know his Akali is great, but this is not a player who had a wide champion pool or was renowned as a top mid laner in the LCK. It just isn't true. It's just not. It's just not how it was. Yeah. And the other thing about Zeka too is that he is an extremely high resource mid laner. He takes a he he. I think is. I'm, I'm pretty sure he has the number one gold percentage among mid laners of uh, in the LCK. It's him or Chovy. Like. Um, I mean, he, he takes a lot of resources, and he plays assassins extremely effectively, but his control mages have been okay, but not, not at the, like, a world-class level, so you would not expect this performance. And I think it is, again, to Zekka's credit, we're not trying to minimize his world's performance, guys, but when you... This is what I fucking hate about, like, the way some fans do things, is that 
they they try and change history, right? And say, oh, Zeka was always super yeah. good. But it does a disservice to what is actually happening, which is a vast improvement and a meteoric rise at this tournament. If you say he was really good before, then you must admit that this is not a surprising performance and it's less cool and we lose a cool narrative. The fact is, is that he was a good but not particularly remarkable mid laner for most of this year in the LCK. And what is incredible is this fucking epic run he's on right now. And watching him in these very high pressure games thrive while Chovy is collapsing is very interesting. So let's fucking talk about the reality of what's happening and celebrate that rather than use it to like rewrite some stupid narratives that didn't exist about Zeka. He spent, he spent a majority of the season just playing safe Azir or Corky. Like that's what he that's what he played. He played Corky and he sat back and he shot rockets and sometimes engaged with packages and he wasn't the best Corky player in the LCK either. Um, you know, players like Faker and Chovy were outperforming him. Lava was in some metrics outperforming him on the Corky and like um this is a player who didn't get to play what he liked until this tournament. So he's very lucky, actually, that he can play a Kali and Yone in, in this tournament and it actually makes sense to do so. Um, so all of the stars are aligning for him, and he is performing, and he's living up to the to the hype um, that we, like, at least that we had for him, right? Like I, I keep using the analogy of the Jack in the Box because like <laughs> I, I, we, we were like cranking really, and then finally he popped, right? Like he finally popped out, and uh, it, it's really exciting to see what he can do against Faker um, because Faker is obviously in the past was the hands guy, the mechanics guy, and I think he still obviously has great mechanics. Um, but how Isaiah like, Shuffle was pretty banging that fucking yeah. one he did the I mean, other day. It, it, yeah, dude. <laughs> that was pretty nice. He had a great semifinal. Look, he looked look, incredible. Look, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not throwing any shade at the greatest of all time. But how he sure. stacks up against Zeka, um, I wonder what will happen in those drafts. Like, will T1 be like, yeah, Faker, you can play Zero into Zeka's Akali? Okay. Like, will they play that game? Like, I don't. I think T1 might be smarter than that. I think they'll they'll draft something different for him, and it'll look like a very different series. I don't think Zeka will be allowed to be like. Yeah, I'm just going to play a Kali into a good matchup, and I'll have side lane control, and I'll actually blow up this Azir anytime he he shows his face on the map. I don't think he'll be allowed to have an amazing series against T1. Um, but the 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 only next step for Zeka, like the only thing he could do uh, to, to actually even level up more than this and be even more impressive, is he actually shows up on on Victor and like has an amazing game, or shows up on uh, Azir and actually pops off incredibly well and, and, and has a great Azir game and has showcased some of the Azir mechanics we haven't really seen from him. And then he's just popping off on control mages in the finals. We're like, okay, all right, like that's the next step. Because um, yeah. that's the only way he can top his performance now. Like how can he show up in the finals and even outdo what he did in those semis? Like there's no way, other way. Um, so the way, another angle that people are missing as to why this is just like some perfect storm for DRX across the board is like people will never understand because they might remember years ago when it was like Deft and Chovy were both on DRX. And at the time, even though it used to also be very criticized, there was all that hype around Pioshek, like, give him more time, guys. Give him more. He's been in the league for years now, guys. And he was a fucking bomb in the LCK. Like he had so many games where he was one of the reasons they couldn't win. Okay. What I will say about Pioshek is he's just very streaky. Uh, he's had some very good spells uh, at times. Uh, he also, like, for whatever reason, is like Canyon's kryptonite. I mean, he, like, if you watch the, the DRX versus Domwon games, like, he puts Canyon in the fucking dumpster. It's, it's actually crazy. So he will have these short bursts. But what, what, I've, said, uh, what I've said before is, like, there is, the, the Pioshek rule has always been if he is good, his teammates can't be good. And if his teammates are good, he can't be good. Like, we've never really had 
both of these things be true at the same time? Except for a very short spell in, in uh, the, the start of summer when DRX was on that hot streak um, at the start of this split. So Pioshek, like, you know, they had to sub out Juhan, like, sub out Juhan in, in very, like, important matches towards the end of the split in, in LCK. But he did, he played really well. He played extremely well in yeah, this series. It, it, it's crazy. It, there's so many parallels to draw between Hanwalaif Esports and their run uh, to get to Worlds last year and actually DRX in that Hanwalaif Esports suddenly started playing Wheeler, who was the jungler, jungler who played with Shovi uh, throughout Worlds. They, he was not played basically at all. And then they played him at the very end and then they go to Worlds and then they make world, Worlds quarters, obviously face T1 in the quarterfinals. Um, and then you have Juhan, who's in the same sort of role, where he just suddenly appears in this really critical moment and basically carries them there. The difference being that Juhan is not played at Worlds outside of like one game in play-ins, uh, maybe two games, I can't even remember, but he hasn't been played obviously since, and I don't think we'll see him in, in the finals or anything like that, but it is just crazy DRX's story. Sixth place team, it, it realistically, I mean, I really think it should have been KT who's actually here and not them. Like, KT choked yes, in, their, in their Worlds qualifiers big time they were favorites against Damwon. They they choked that as well. Like KT basically should be here. Um, we we have we we could live in a completely different world right now. Um, and who knows what what KT would have done in quarters if they made it. But DRX just keep winning. They keep silencing. They're the like powder. It's fucking crazy. It's insane. <laughs> and and you know it, they did. We talked earlier about Genji choking, and that is true. And multiple players played very badly, but. Uh, DRX has been a team that has been very clinical throughout this tournament. How many times have we said, if you give DRX a lead, they're the anaconda, they're the, the python that just slowly chokes you out. They're extremely methodical. They're, they're very cool under pressure. Like, they don't take stupid risks. They will literally just sit there, as they did in this series, and be like, nah, we're just not going to do anything until we get the soul, and then we're just going to just slowly suffocate you, right? So this is, this is um, I mean, they, their macro game has been good. Uh, I think Kingen had a very good series. Like they all, they all had a good series, except for maybe Barrel to like a lesser degree. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I, you look at this roster, and they they all seem to be coming up at the right time. And I think that there's an underrated aspect of this as well, which is that they are playing with no pressure. They're playing with no fucking pressure. Nobody expected point in them. time. Not in the yeah, regionals. Not in the groups. Not even in the fucking any of these matches. It's why actually, yeah. by the way, I wouldn't even get... Uh, that's actually why they, they actually have more than a zero chance in the final, in my opinion. Of is course. they also don't have any pressure there. Like, if they yeah. come second, they had the best tournament we could ever imagine, pretty much. Yeah. And, oh, just briefly to go back to the Pioshik point. Also, you know what really fucking helps as a jungler? Your mid lane winning lane. <laughs> like and that that also is not something that has happened a lot over the over the regulars. It's happened a lot of worlds, but it hasn't happened a lot in the in the regular season um, in LCK. So like having Pioshek having so much more room to move, especially when you're playing a champ like Kindred that wants to invade and get those marks and everything like that. Mid Brio, pretty fucking important. Not, yeah, not to mention that we haven't talked about this. We talked about Zeka it being like the, the stars aligning for his champion pool. Pioshek named himself after Kendra. I know this is a big meme because we keep saying, like, yeah, you named himself after the Mark. That's what it means. His name means Mark. But he literally gets to pick Kindred in the first phase of drafting, just blind face up, and still wins with it and performs on it. And DRX are just like, we're going to do what we like, or we're going to play our best champions, and we're going we're gonna to win the semifinals, I guess. Like, it's, it's insane that he gets to play Kindred here. Like, how is this actually happening? Yeah, one time as a counterpick, the other time blind, and he's just... 
he's just rolling with the punches. He's getting to play what he likes. He's he's having the best time ever. It's it's such a crazy story of how everything has come together for them. And Piochik gets to play his best. He's on a hot streak. This is what he does. Like if Piochik wins worlds, I guarantee you, like the first week of spring, he's gonna look like the worst jungle. Yeah, there isn't a lot of consistency to this guy, but you only need to you only need to be on a hot streak for a short period of time in 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 order to uh, in order to win the tournament, right? And basically, time is frozen now because there is no more practicing before the finals. Like scrims are done, guys. The, there are first off, there wouldn't be time because they're going to have to move over to San Francisco, do all these video shoots for Riot, like do all the content stuff. They're probably flying right now if they yeah. haven't landed already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also. There, guys, there's just nobody to practice with anymore. You know, sometimes when, when Worlds is in Asia, there will be a few teams, or like G2 was very smart last year about uh, using that time, as, as Dylan told us on this show, um, using that time to like form the new roster and just like get practice with it or like try out people basically. But NA is a, NA rosters are in fucking shambles right now, guys. There's nobody who's ready to, to compete with, and honestly, the practice would be worthless for teams of this caliber. Um, so there is no practicing anymore, uh, besides like one V oneing your, your, between your solo lanes or, or shit like this, uh, and, or playing like champions or, or like text-based like draft scrims where you actually <laughs> practice draft, which, which teams do sometimes do where you like literally have score might go into a, a, a chat room and like actually type out champion picks and see like what other coaches are thinking or stuff like that. Like I've seen that before. And Heroes of the Storm was a huge thing where people would play this like mini game where they would just like draft against each other and, yeah. and argue about who won and stuff. So that kind of stuff you can do. You can brainstorm a score with other right. coaches. They have a coaching staff. It's not just him who's like, I guess it's all up to me now. But he's going to be talking with his players and th getting their thoughts on the game. But in terms of the evolution of what we've seen of the meta, I don't think anything is going to change over the course of this week. We're still going to be seeing more Varus. That's going to be a hot pick. Aphelios has fallen off. Um, I think Kindred might be banned by T1. I don't know if, if that's something they're going to allow Pioshik to play, but he might just continue to play it. I don't think we're going to see huge meta shifts, but both of these teams are playing very off-meta compared to what Genji thought was the best way. We're seeing T1, I mean, I, I guess we could transition to talking about the T1 side of, of the semifinals. T1 played completely differently than any other team in this tournament to win their semis. Yeah, I'd also say the difference is that series actually, at least the first two games, was really good. Those first two games were bangers. It looked like oh, the whole yeah. be over. It even looked like JDG was going to be able to do the shit they do, where they just team fight from behind all day long. So it was going to be super compelling. The problem is from game three onwards, then T1 just went to the fucking stratosphere, which is why now that there's no Gen G, you can be super hyped for the final. Yeah, I mean, I well, I. I, look, we all thought it was going to be like a 3-0 or 3-1 uh, Gen G win, and that didn't happen. So as much as I, on paper, would like to believe that it's a 3-1 probably angle for T1 to win the finals, like DRX just seems, like we said earlier, just seems to be like a have fucking anime plot armor right now. So God only knows if they all just pop off again, perhaps it's possible. Um, I, you know, I talked about this on the last show, but it's, the thing about T1 is that I think they're a bad matchup for JDG because the style that JDG plays uh, was, you know, it's a, it's, when we're talking about the team fights from behind, they have to have an angle to engage, right? Where they're really good is making that snap decision about 
you, you've slightly mispositioned half a screen away. You are dead. We are winning this team fight. They're very good at the team fighting and sequencing their abilities. But the thing about T1 is they play all these pick comps. So they know these engage ranges better than any other team, which means, and they also play with vision better than most other teams because they themselves are the team that sets the vision traps and gets the picks and engages from a screen away. And so it's hard to get that angle onto them if they have a lead. And also T1 is just never, they just won't fight you in a 5v5. Like they just refuse to do it. Any composition is a pick composition. They're going to try and catch you out in the side lanes. They're going to try and pick you off before the objective, you know, pops. They are not, they are simply not going, you know, you saw it with the, the sneak and the Baron in game two. Uh, I think it was game two. Yeah. The most T1 Baron ever. Yeah, the most T1 Baron ever, where they bait out your TP, then they just like realm warp over to the Baron, and you just can't get there. And they're just because, but they they knew they they have such a good idea of their win condition versus win condition. They're never gonna fight you in that five v five ever. Like, and so they'll just they'll the term what you coined was like macro blast. Macro blast, man. Macro blast. This is like. Oh, we're over here now because they're not going to take that fight because they know they can't win it. And they know it's not their team composition's best interest to do it. So they'll just run you around the whole fucking rift. And then once, once they see that moment in time, just that's when the decision comes. They know what they're doing. Like their shot calling's amazing. And as, as we've said previously, like when they play Sivir Yumi, it's not about 5v5. It's about running at you really fast. It's way <laughs> And then finding you and then pop Sivir pop ult, and that Yumi goes on the Akali, and then you just die all alone, right? So it, T1 is a super interesting team right now, uh, and you can you can see that strength. And I that's why I thought this matchup was, like, it's very interesting stylistically, and both of these teams were very, very good at what they did. Uh, but conventional logic uh, around this meta doesn't apply, because people will be like, oh, T1 was outdrafted. I'm like... Only if you think they are ever going to team fight, which they're not, and watch how they don't do that, and then they don't do it, and then they win. They basically they basically won a lot of these games by making sure hope and missing were non-factors, and they left. So this is we talked about this a week ago on this show, which is that my fear for JDG, I predicted JDG to win, but my fear for them was that they were going to play put Kanavi playing around topside to try to punish Zayas when he's playing these weaker champions that are very diveable, like the. Somehow you just got muted there. I think you pulled something out. No. One sec. Are nope. we? Yep, we're back. All right. Sorry. There we go. You're back. All right. So we're back. Um, so, like I said, the, the, my, I predicted JDG, but my fear for them was they were going to play Kanavi around topside, diving Zayas when he's on vulnerable champions like the Gangplank, which literally happened in that series. And then T1 were going to play a dive focus comp and just destroy Hope and Missing, who've been having weak laning. Gumiusi and Karia, I mean, Karia never really fell off, but Guma had a, a rough summer, but he's back in form in terms of his laning right now. Um, and that T1 would just play around bottom side and play champions where Zayas will just weak side and even die and still farm it up and carry later on the gangplank. And that's what they did. And, you know, T1 also played the Camille Gallio. They lost that first game of it, but it's comfort for them. It's a draft that they, they actually love playing. They have played it in, against Dom played it against Dom one. They played against top teams, even in best of threes in regular season. And when they lose... They're heavily criticized by the fans, like, why are they playing these outdated drafts? Nobody plays this anymore. It's not that strong. It's too risky. But T1 has all these cool drafts, all the, the Nocturne drafts we saw from them all year long. One game here, one game there, and these weird series against, like, Afrika or against Fred at Brianna. People are like, well, this, they're just trolling, they're playing Nocturne. But no, they actually have these drafts planned out where they're going to play around the bottom side of the map. They're going to dive the enemy AD carry repeatedly. 
And this felt like comfort for T1. And, and if you don't watch the LCK and you don't watch T1, you're watching these drafts, you're probably like, wow, they had all these crazy things prepared. How did they prepare all these drafts in the week before semifinals? It's like, no, they've been playing these all year. They've been playing these all year. And I think JDG just wasn't prepared for it because it's not in their recent footage. And it's not their style. Like you said, it's a stylistic matchup that's really bad for them because they like the team fight. And owner's like, I'm playing Nocturne. I'm going to engage on you from a million miles away. Faker's like, I'm playing Galio. I'm playing Rise. We're all over the map. We're just avoiding you. Yeah, you can play Malphite if you want, but you're never going to get the team fight you're looking for. <laughs> like, yeah. By the way, in general, the other thing as well that makes that style work, obviously, is like they were getting ahead in games as well, especially through mid lane. Because there's the other factor, like, mate... It's like JDG actually did get the scouting report from about five years ago. Dude, they thought he was just like, we have to just fucking spam gank Faker all series long. And he dodged like every fucking what it felt like. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. well, what it. all time. The flesh and blood of Faker right there on the stage. I mean, Faker, That's what it was like. It's like everyone just wanted to be the guy who killed Faker. It's like those fucking famous videos where Ninja would just drop into a lobby and like a hundred kids are just like, I killed Ninja, everyone get him! Like World War Z or some shit. It's mental. You guys are aware of they don't even play, they play inside out on this team. They play to the other fucking lanes. Because that was the mad thing. Faker just dropped like a fucking classic throwback series. It was like, right, here's the Azir, God tier fucking ult. I'm playing Rise. It's not even supposed to be a fucking giant champion pick right now by the way and then also i'll just chuck in a galio games for all time's sake this was like some throwback shit mate yeah no i think it was i think it was absolutely crazy and like this is what you get out of faker is like these big moments faker could be having a bad year historically but when the finals rolls around he's gonna he's gonna get you some vintage shit man and he's obviously not super washed mechanically no he's, he's god too he, he looked like i mean he looked like he was like neo in the matrix like dodging all the bullets of these fucking skill shots doing amazing engages then just outplaying with macro with like the the rise like realm warps and everything to the baron and like realm warping himself to safety he's just he's such an inventive player which is why he's you know the greatest player of all time but like the I joke mean, he, is he even on. fucking tricked chovy into thinking chovy could play rise and we all saw how that went so wasn't the champion homie it was faker not you inspired zeka to play galio because that's not a zeka i think has played like a few galio games this year but not a lot for sure i think yeah that was his fourth game i think of, of galio this year the the evolution of faker as a player is one of the coolest things we've we've seen in esports and i don't mean just like league of legends but just esports in general because he's maintained his mechanical form Faker was not famous for his macro plays when he was young. He was famous for solo killing people in mid lane when that was how mid lane was played, and that's how you dominated as a mid laner back then. It was actually killing people. That's why champions like Zed and LeBlanc were super famous back then. So well, yeah, just powerful. buy Deathfire Grasp and yeah. blow up the support, right? Exactly. But now, you know, mid has played a, a, as a more facilitative role. Um, you know, Papa Smithy is joking. It's like the second support basically now. It was more a facilitative role, and he's he's both done the assassin, I kill you, I outhands you, but he's also done the galaxy brain macro plays, I play roaming mids, I play for my team, I play supportive, and he's done this over the course of a decade, and you put him on a LeBlanc, and he will still outhands you, and he will still kill you. His Akali plays have been impressive at Worlds. Like, there, there is no, like, yin and yang to Faker, there's no, like, well, you can do this and that, there are no two dots of, of the weak points on both his, like, macro plays and his hands plays, like, there are no, there are no holes, there are no dots uh, in, in the Faker yin yang, he just has both, he's a complete package, and that's why it's so terrifying to, to see him like this, and all the people who type the shaker in the Twitch chat are like, oh, he's washed, he's washed, he's washed, there's proven wrong time and time again when this guy just shows up, 
and he's the oldest player on his team, and he's got all these young people around him, and he's like, yeah, I was here, by the way, like, in the finals, when he goes to the finals, I'm like, yeah, I've been here four other times, by the way, you know, and I won three of them. Um, how, is, how do you ever get in his head? How do you ever out-macro this guy when he's on the best macro team, and a lot of these decisions around Barons are his calls, he is coaching this team, he is making these calls, he is doing the drafts, he is everything, and that is... Just such a terrifying thing to face. And like, yeah, Zekas had his, his big glow up, but like, how will he compete against Faker? Well, when even Faker is not just going to get outhanded by Zeka, and, and Faker's not going to choke. He's just yeah. not going to choke. It's never going to happen. Uh, by the way, so, let's, let's just be real. Even if Zeka somehow plays fucking insane and is like laying kingdoming him like he did against Chauvy, Faker doesn't care. He will just play to the fucking Zeus's lane or something like he has for the last two worlds. But I mean, obviously they had cannon on the last one, but you know what I mean? Like he has shown, he has, like, like Wolf's saying, he hasn't like Uzi eye just run it into the wall. Like I'm always going to play this one style as if I'm the best in the world. And if I'm ever not, by the way, we just lose. Like he's actually been willing to say if someone else is better in the team, play through them. Obviously, I want to win. Yeah. And you combine that with like Gumiyushi actually having a you know a very good tournament, much better than his domestic than his domestic split. Part part of that was the shift in meta was was obviously huge for him, and the shift in the sport meta was also very good um, for them as well. But uh, I think I think you look you look at this T1 team, and it's like yeah, like even if he does get lane kingdom, again T1 just. T1 is not, they're just not going to fight you without a man advantage with some of these compositions. Like, they have played, like, the front-to-back team fighting. So, like, for example, in the final game that T1 played, they played Gragas, Viego, Azir, uh, Varys, and Renata Glask. And this is definitely, like, we're going to have a team fight. And they did, and they won the game. That was the fastest game. I think JDG was more or less, like, mentally broken at that point in time. So they can do these other types of compositions as well, but they have this this extra arrow in their quiver which is the most their, their like most powerful secret move and i think also it really hurt jdg because who do you practice who's going to do this to you there was no other team at the tournament that was playing this way so it's like the other teams were training them incorrectly to face this one opponent because nobody is capable of playing this play and, style and, and they didn't play it t1 didn't play it all worlds until this moment like they had played it obviously in like the the style i'm talking about with like nocturne and, and those heavy dives and the camille gallios type of stuff they didn't really show that that much this tournament if at all and they were hiding something in the group stage i mean they were that's what they were doing compositions for most of the sure. tournament but no I, I agree though do you think do you think they intentionally hid stuff and, in in the group stage and, and they also had Games of this, like I said, sprinkled throughout random regular season games, like the, the punching bag teams, they would just be like, oh, let's try this out on this team. Like, let's do a scrim live on TV. Um, and, and, like, if you're preparing for this as JDG, well, you've spent the entire year, obviously, preparing for LPL matches and stuff, you might have missed those one-off games where T1 actually play this style, because you can't see everything. Um, I also think, you know, what's, what's interesting about T1 is that if you're just coming into Worlds and you think, oh, this team is running these interesting pick compositions, they've trained all year to do this. This has been their year. Yeah. Uh, this has been their, their bread and butter. So they are so far advanced in this style of play right now that there is no catching up to this meta at Worlds. Like, DRX is not going to become this team in the next week because they've been dealing with this shit from T1 all year. It takes different forms, but the fundamentals of how they perceive the game and how they, they basically, you know, want to get an advantage before approaching any objective 
is the under the underpinnings of this have been this entire year in the making and what you're seeing is like the pinnacle of this development that they've had as a team that is wholly unique to T1 this year wholly unique to T1 like they were the ones who invented and like made sure that everybody knew Kaisa AP Kaisa was fucking broken in spring right they they have been the nexus like the fount of this style and that's that's what's been so interesting about them as a team and it's cool to see it continue to be used and they've kept on figuring out different ways with different champions to play the style that they have created for themselves i think it's in theory, theory craft then how does drx beat them like what would be in theory the way that you could counter these comps i mean they, i think they can play through bot lane i i think that's the only way right uh, that's the drx way <laughs> um it, it is tricky right um i think that DRX had to show a lot of their, their cool strats um, on their way up as well, like the Heimerdinger that Beryl has, by the way, been the Heimerdinger guy. He played it on Dom Kia all the time. Uh, it's not a secret that he likes to play Heimerdinger, but he played it very well, and now it's just target banned against him, which is, in, in a lot of ways, like a, a great win because you have this ban that's essentially wasted against a, one specific player who plays this one specific play style. And T1 might not ban it, we'll see, but... Let's see what else Barrel has in, in the playbook. Like, does he have anything else he can do in terms of that bottom lane? Do they have a weird Senna, Seraphine type thing that maybe they've prepared? Not as strong in this meta. Maybe we see Zekka on Swain. Callista. Callista, right? Like, Depth's Callista is incredible. His Draven was... He hasn't played a lot, but he, it was okay. Like, you know, I mean, it, it could work out. Um, yeah, he's, he, it was like his third or fourth game ever on Draven. He hadn't played yeah. in like five years, but looked good on it. I mean, that was the big surprise, I think, from Depth was that pulling out Draven. That was really something you didn't expect. Um, you know, I think it's interesting, though, because at least T1 has run the Ash Heimerdinger lane, whereas Genji didn't. One of the big puzzling things about Genji to me is why they weren't the one running the Ash Heimerdinger lanes and, like, felt they had to ban it. That's really strange because Ruler is a very notable Ash player, and you would think that Lehenza's style would lend itself very well to playing Heimerdinger. So the fact that they had to ban that I thought was very problematic for them. I think it's just that they have they weren't really prepared for playing that style in this tournament, even though like they were focused on their style of playing, which is lane domination, like which is what they had all year rulers MVP, right? Uh I I'm thinking about it again and like one of the picks I think that I would like to see from Pyoshik is actually the Poppy, because I think he's been a pretty good Poppy player when he's on. We've talked about his inconsistencies, and I think Poppy is a jungler that a jungle champion that forces your opponent to make smart decisions and you can make big plays around the bottom side of the map. So if you put Deft on a strong side champion with the Poppy, might force owner to actually be able to be, have to like think about where he's going instead of like just being told where to go by Faker and just defaulting. T1's very T1's playstyle is amazing, but it is very binary and it is very obvious what owner's going to do in these in these uh matchups. Like when he's playing the Nocturne, it's like, all right, we're diving bot, you're going down there, you're gonna ult from a million miles away. It doesn't matter. Like it's not a Playstyle where you get to show your smarts per se. You're just a cog in the wheels owner and you're gonna do everything right, but you're gonna do it exactly as the comp is supposed to do it. When you put owner in a composition where he actually has to like play a little bit more reactionary and Pyoshik has the lead, I think that could be one way they, they trip things up because owner hasn't been the best at decision making as a jungler. So putting uh Pyoshik on Poppy, for example, forcing owner to play like Trundle, which he hasn't historically been amazing on, um, could be one way to to get into how you win the jungle matchup, how you get ahead in the early parts of the game. Yeah, and Pioshek being on farm, like Graves or uh, or uh, Kindred, right? Because like the, the mind game is like, if you pick Graves, well, you know Pioshek's going to pick Kindred if it's not banned. Um, also, uh, an interesting factor that will probably come into play with 
with JDG is, uh, or with T1 from the JDG series, is JDG had to ban Caitlyn on both sides. And like, that's not going to happen in this matchup because uh, as we've, as we've seen, like Deft will just go ahead and pick Caitlyn, right? And we know that Gumiyushi is an insane Caitlyn player. So the, the Caitlyn mind games become very real. For, on the side of DRX, their considerations also, like, I think you have to ban Yone at this point in time. Like, JDG tried to not ban it and ended up really regretting that. Zeko will play it, though, potentially, so they, there are some angles there. Yeah, that that's true. Um, so I, there are some angles for Yone, which is, like, interesting to have a comeback, but I just don't think you can let Zayas have this pick at this point in time, because, again, even if you think you have an answer for 5v5 fighting, they just are not going to 5v5 fight you with the Yone, so... How else are you going to deal with it, right? I think it's easier just to remove it entirely. So, like, in, th in this next series, what's going to be interesting is, like, is the Heimerdinger up because both of these teams play it? Uh, is the Caitlyn up because both of these teams play it? Are the Graves and Kindred both up, right? Um, these are going to be some of the big draft considerations that are are going to change from previous series that we've seen both of these teams. I do wonder, because... We haven't seen it really from King in this tournament that much. Like it has is banned. It's been banned so much. I'm talking about Aatrox. Um, the angle for him to get Aatrox might be there this series because his Orn might be target banned. Like that's something that T1 is definitely going to be keeping their eye on. So maybe we see a game where King actually gets to play Aatrox. So he's not as good as the more famous Aatrox. Even Doran's Aatrox is more notable than Kingen's, but it is a champion he's very comfortable on. So. That's another angle I could see some Aatrox drafts coming through from DRX if they have the opportunity to play it. They're definitely preparing that. So, you know, probably on red side, like getting the Aatrox when T1 pick another prio pick is, is definitely an angle. Like if they give Silas, for example, and try to play Aatrox into it, there, there's a way to, to make that happen. Um, I think drafting is going to be a huge part of this series because DRX will need to have either comfort, which I don't think T1 will allow, or some sort of draft edge, I think, if they're ever going to have a chance to beat T1. Because in a straight-up game where they both play, like you know, straight-up evergreen comps, like we like to call it in the LCK, where it's just like, oh, we're running an Azir with a scaling composition, or we're running a Victor, and there's no edge for us, we're just going to hope the team fight better. Unfortunately, I just don't see DRX winning in the fire-versus-fire fire type of, of So what, what I would say about this is, like, another avenue for DRX to win is that they've been really good at early objective control, and, like, you've seen them get multiple souls throughout that uh, throughout the Gen G series, which ended up kind of being the backbreaker in a lot of those games. And they are they they really prioritize stacking those early drakes, and they're very successful at it. And if you give if you give you know a, a seven eight minute Drake, right, you're accelerating the timeline for Soul. And eventually, even the compositions that T1 runs will have to team fight you, right? So there is there is a way I think for DRX to sort of light the fuse by using uh, early dragon timings to then force them in, into a state to win. And if Zekka continues to win lane like he is, it's very easy for them to take these dragons because of the priority. Um, and that could be really disastrous, I think, for T1, potentially. Like, that that's a, a pretty big angle I could see, because we know how T1's going to play. I don't think they're going to ban the Orn, because I think that... Uh, 
I, I just frankly think that Zayas will just e ego pick carries into it and say, trust me, I'm going to do this. And then they'll play around topside, but the vulnerability for that is going to be giving up objectives on the bottom side of the map. And that's where the dragon stacking, I think, can, can come into play in a major way. What's so cool about Zayas's Yone, too, is he plays it in this sort of weird weak side way where he'll sit on a, in a side lane and then he will look vulnerable, but then use Yone's knockup into ult to actually buy an insane amount of time for his team to rotate and... T1's like the best macro team at rotating and turning what looks like, oh no, Zayas got caught 1v3 into like a 4v3 fight where T1 has the advantage, they wipe, and then it's actually, it was their plan all along to have Zayas out there like that. Like his survivability on Yone is, is kind of insane. Like we've seen him actually survive so many crazy fights where he knocks up one way, then ults backwards into the team and gets multiple knockups that way so that he could buy enough time just to get out of there. Um, and use Yone's ult that way is, is really sick, actually, how he plays the champion. A lot of top champions that are survivable like that don't have the ability to also all in and engage from a million miles away. So he's, he's made Yone look more of a not just engaged champion, but a strong side laning champion that can buy time for big realm warps and, and you know, roaming mids that Faker's playing. By the way, one thing we should do, because obviously it's a feature we're doing here, is shouldn't we do the Big Dick Energy Award? Of course. I mean, I think Faker wins it. <laughs> <laughs> what about Zika? Zika, well, yeah, he's not, he's not even in contention. Oh man, that's right. We we have our we have our big dick energy award here. Uh, like, I think they're both I'm... candidates, but like put it this way, Zika did fucking lane kingdom trophy. That's not I... that's not fucking chopped liver. True, no. Like I think so. When when I it depends on how you qualify the big dick energy. What I think about the big dick energy is having like the flashiest moment. And like, yes, Zekka was extremely good. And I think Zekka probably is the leading MVP candidate for the entirety of okay. Worlds right now. Um, but Agreed. with that so said... So are we saying that the Zero was the big dick moment then? Or the Rise ones. I mean, you pick, man. Like the, the Rise Escape 2, where, you know, he, he juked and then got out via the Realm Warp. I just think, you know, as good as Zekka was, I think Faker had like the big dick plays. That would be my argument. It's a tough one for me, uh, and I'm not going to make the final call because I made the, the final call on Showmaker last time. But uh, I was leaning towards Zekka um, after yesterday, but I think that was kind of some recency bias. And thinking about it more, like I spent a lot of time thinking about the T1 series last night, obviously before the show today. And some of the dodges Faker had, the Realm Warp escape, plus the Azir ult, the flashiness of it, does feel like anime hair, <laughs> exactly. Dragon Ball Z to me. Um, so I, I'm kind of leaning towards Faker for this one. Uh, but, I mean, Zekka had a... Like, Zekka's big dick energy moment is, like, predicated by the fact that, like, he's had this glow-up of this tur of the right. tournament and stuff, and there's, like, a lot of... There's a lot of, like, asterisks to it as well, where you have to be like, well, it is it was great for him, and a lot of these games were one-sided, and he was ahead, but, like, also it's more great because if you know the story behind Zekka, whereas Faker is just, like... I mean, there's, there's no extra story to tell. He was just a giga chat, and he dodged everything. So it, it's, a, it's a tough call, but I, I'm kind of leaning towards Faker myself. Do you have, do you have any Oh, I also ideas? just... I, I also had forgotten this. I just rewatched it now. Dude, he's on, like, fucking zero health almost when he does it as well. Yeah, yeah. okay, that can, that can win then. I, can, I forgot we're also okay. doing the moment. I thought it was, like, for the whole series. Yeah, the Azirblade's crazy. And also, as a reminder, the reason why we gave it to Showmaker last week is it was fucking, like big dick swain game where he was like you know using the never move to grab three people between turrets and shit so like for me it's like it's different than the mvp 
uh, I think like Zeka, Zeka is the lead. I mean, if you guys have any other candidates for for MV, MVP at this point in the time, Zayas is world. probably number two, right? I mean, I'd say Zayas is like the second leading player, especially if you consider of of only the two teams left. I think Kyria has a shot. Kyria has yeah. been very good too. I mean, goes I, in the I, top I, three. I mean, it will definitely. We will definitely. It will be be very clear. I think after the finals, like I don't think there will be any mystery after the finals as to, as to who's going to get it because we'll see who ends up popping off the most there of these these players we're talking about. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ship one of these to Faker in San Francisco this week. <laughs> a nice, a nice surprise. Uh, he'll have a nice surprise uh, later this week when he gets there. Might already be there. We'll find out. Um, but yeah, so fun times. Thanks to eSports Bet for doing that. By the way, as a reminder, you guys can win these too, and we will ship them to you if you put your, your big dick energy bets. So if you had a crazy, you know, some crazy odds, maybe you picked DRX to win Worlds when they were at like 250. Uh, that would be pretty insane. You'd probably win one uh, if you had a sizable amount on that. So either DJT or Cryptocurrency, remember to send them to the mod mail on the eSports Bet Discord. The link is below, and uh, you might get one as well. So something fun that esports bet are doing for you guys too. Um, yeah, that's what's right. mad. Because here's the here's the mad thing. If you think about it, right? You would think because they were one of the crazy outside teams to win that no one would have bet on them. But actually, having a player like Deft means there might be some Deft fan that actually did make a bet on the team to win just for like even if it's like a hundred dollars just for fun or something. Like it's not impossible someone's going to win. I mean, they have to still win the final, by the way, which is a big if. But it's not even impossible someone wins that bet. It's not like one that no one would ever do. Yeah. And even in the, I think even if you did an outright uh, at the uh, at the semifinals, they were still at like fourteen or something like that. Oh, it so makes that sense. Was, yes, it was an interesting stat too. So there were eight people before the semifinals who had who still had the perfect bracket and like the bracket challenge that Riot always does, and yes. all of them had uh, T1 and Genji winning. So there are no perfect brackets. I mean, you by the way, win. that's even a detail I wanted to make just so people understand how crazy this Cinderella run is. On across all the shows that I've done and watched, I actually managed to find people who took all three of the other teams on that side of the bracket. Like Jensen Go had like EDG going to the finals. I can't remember who it was. Someone had Dam One going to the finals. Obviously, a lot of people had Genji. Nobody, not a single person on any show before the quarterfinals actually said DRX could make the final. Even people who thought they could win the first match, no one had them going to the finals. So, like, so that just stresses to me that, like, nobody predicted this whatsoever. This isn't the one where there's one guy like, oh, but I did say, but no one listened. That guy doesn't exist. The joke yeah. is no one even Korean had them fucking going there. Not even Korean. the craziest copium ever had this team going to the final. You can go back and watch the the Monty and Wolf show that we did before the, the Korean qualifier where we're just like, we're not even going to talk about DRX. They we literally didn't talk about them. We were like, all right, so the only team we know is not going to Worlds is DRX. So let's focus on KT versus Sandbox and Dom in this triangle. We, we did the triangle discussion yeah. about that, which was one of our best episodes. I thought was really interesting. But I literally said like, so let's just, uh, we've already had a long show. We'll just leave DRX out. Like, I mean, that is how confident it, basically universally everyone was. This team is yeah. not even going to this tournament. I mean, think about what they, they weren't supposed to be here, right? Then they weren't supposed to get first place in their group from RNG. If anything, you would have said in this meta, RNG is the world's dark horse. Like this is a team that's in play-ins that with this meta shift up, well, maybe they can actually make the finals. Maybe they could actually win crazily enough. Nobody thought that about DRX, yet there they did. First game of play-ins, they, uh, they, Clap RNG, they, they immediately get through to groups, right? They, they weren't supposed to make it at any point in time during this tournament. Uh, you know, they weren't supposed to get out of their group in first place, right? 
Top was supposed to do much better than that, and Rogue was 3-0 coming out of that first week, took the win against DRX. Somehow, they managed to get first place in their group. Then everybody's like, oh, well, good thing they, they drew EDG, or this series would be very boring, because DRX would just get absolutely destroyed. They reverse sweep fucking EDG, and then they come in and just destroy the, the number one team in Korea. They actually, by the way, guys, they had to beat both Top and, and, uh, and Gen G two of the three favorites coming into this tournament, right? The only other one was, was JDG. Now, none of these teams are actually in the finals, crazily enough. Like, to have the top three teams that were pretty much universally agreed to be the leading teams at Worlds, and then you say, okay, this meta is good for T1, they have an outside shot. Nobody in hell thought DRX was going to be here. Like, you, would, you weren't like, wow, well, maybe with some... Maybe with a weaker AD carry meta, meta the team with fucking Kingin is going to be the one in the finals. Like, that's outlandish. Yep. It's just, it's I'll just even not, say it. Put it this way. We'll even meme on ourselves. Like, I'm going to tell the clip guy, like, for real. We'll just use our own material for this. We'll just make a, a compilation of us at every stage possible betting against DRX and saying they won't win and saying they won't do it and just do the whole way through. Because it, if it, whether they win or lose in the finals, it's going to be an insane video. Like, they, they really were supposed to lose every single step of the way. Yeah. It, it's, it's wild. Like, I, I think... Even now, let's be real. Like, we're still not really giving them a chance to win now. Like, no. <laughs> like the joke is it won't be until the moment they actually yeah. just pry that trophy that anyone's going to go the joke is I'm even going to do it you ready fans if DRX somehow win one minute after they win I'll just do a tweet like I think DRX could actually win Worlds now you know like some some stupid jokes that'll be the only moment anyone ever fucking believed in them <laughs> the thing and the fans again this is like this is like fake hype about Zeka or like rewriting Zeka's past you guys don't want us to, to think that DRX has a chance to win, okay? Because first off, it's intellectually dishonest to believe that at this point in time, just straight up. Like, they should not be here. They should not have a chance in the final. This should be a very easy match. For what you said wasn't wrong. Yeah, wasn't by wrong. The, <laughs> the results were, the result right, we predicted because, correct. Because if, if you insist that DRX is, a, is a, a team that should be competitive with T1 in this final, you are doing them a disservice if they win because it's even more amazing if they fucking win at that point in time. Like, if DRX win this final, I guess I'm just going to become a believer of, of predetermined fate. Like, I'm just going to be like, no, someone actually, someone is, there is a puppeteer. There is actually someone who controls destiny. Like, it's, it's not actually about, like, what actually makes sense anymore. It's, there's actually well, someone... By the way, I can tell you right now... DRX is winning. It is. It is determined. Yeah, it is, I, I, if you know how, if you know how fan narratives work, here's why it's annoying as well when they build up a team like this. Because if DRX is crap and it's a three zero for T one, people will go, yeah, but they only had to beat JDG, RNG, and DRX, didn't they? Like, who did they really even beat? They can't win. You can't win with fans like that, mate. They will always do that whack angle. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's also like. I mean, DRX's road to get here, uh, especially like what was mentioned in our chat and the live viewing yesterday was like just the, the mids that Zeka has had to overcome is fucking crazy. I mean, it's like Scout, Knight, Chovy, Larson. Like, I mean, all of those guys are supposed to be better than Zeka, by yep. the way. All of them. Yeah, I, I saw a really, I saw a really cool post on Reddit, which is you know usually the opposite of what happens. But there was a there was a post that said basically Zeka is 
Zeka's performance yesterday is what people were hyped to see from Chovy and Knight and and Doinby in the past, right? Like what Zeka did in the flashiness of his plays and like the incredible story for the fans who don't watch his domestic region, he actually got to to live up to a hype he didn't even have. Yep. Whereas like people like Chovy, people have this this fan image of Chovy as the the anime character who will smite the enemies and he will get the big numbers and he's just gonna walk across with his azir and just shove the enemy teams into the bin. And then Zeka actually did that. I thought it was a really, it was a really cool statement. Just something that simple, but like, what Zeka was is what people thought Knight would be. Is what people imagined is what Knight and Chovy and Doinby in the past would be. Is actually what Zeka is in reality in front of us, which I thought was a cool thing. Yeah. Does anybody? I I think three one for T one. That's that's my prediction as well. Um, you know the the other thing, the last thing I'll say about the DRX Genji series is that. It was impossible to believe that DRX would win from an analyst perspective going into that series. We talked about it before, all of us before the show, and we were like, is there any angle? And the only angle we could come up with was Genji underperforms, right? And after game two, um, like. Well, Pop had an angle about like Kingen being better than Doran, which ended up being true. I said it. I don't think Peanut's very good at graves, so perhaps there's a there's an angle where he underperforms on graves, and, and which also happened, um, especially because we knew we knew that Piotrzyk was going to play Kindred into it. But overall, as the series progressed, like before game one, we were like overall basically thinking the chances of, of them winning. Were, I guess we said 30, 30 to thirty five percent. But after game two, we were all saying like one hundred percent they win. And yeah. like Papa said in halfway through game two, I think the series is over. And like it, it was just so clear that like Genji were defeated and it felt like there was no way like mental boom. Now during the T one series, uh, you know, next week or this weekend, there might be a time after game two where we go, Okay, DRX is going to do this. But until that moment, like it's it's just how can we see it? I can't see a world. I just can't. Like We'll see what T1 looks like on the day, because that's the cool thing about these long, grueling tournaments, is like how you show up on the day is more important than everything you did before that. You picking T1 as well? I'll go T1-3-0, because here's the big problem. Like I said before, to me, the final of Worlds, TI, the major, the problem is you've never experienced that pressure before. So if you are DRX, who already is overperforming in a bunch of different roles, there's a world where you just play game one, even if game one's close, you lose. You lose game two. Like, to win that third game then is just such an impossible psychological challenge. It, you can get 3 0 in finals. There's a reason why a lot of finals are bad, unfortunately, in esports. Like, I think the pressure overwhelms the game usually. So I would imagine T1 just rolls it personally. Like I say, I would expect the first game to be the best one. I think... Um... At the very least, like T1 also has a, a bunch of young players, but both teams, are, I think, are less likely to choke because the two most experienced players, I mean, this is Beryl's third consecutive final. He's the shot caller on that roster, and Faker's not going to crumble under the pressure either. So at least the people who are making a lot of the macro calls are going to be the ones who have the most experience. Not to mention also the, the newer players on T1 just did two back-to-back -back LCK finals and an MSI finals yeah, with having true. an entire run through MSI. So a lot of experience got washed into the, these players like very early on. So they've, they've all now leveled up. Owner obviously playing at Worlds last year too. Um, and Guman stuff. So like that, and Kerry has played multiple worlds. So like, they are definitely in terms of high pressure uh, scenarios. I think overall the the more veteran team for sure.
Also, by the way, I will say, you know, normally Korean players, unless they actually have like a famous rivalry, they're not actually that that well known for like volunteering trash talk. Dude, how fucking savage was that deft line about Carrier? If people don't know, used to be his old lane mate, where he said that line, he goes, Carrier promised me that he'd get me a world's title. And now he's going to like... Fucking hell, dude, what the fuck? What the hell? That's your brother, like, that's sticking the knife right in him there, holy. That's, I never expected that one, man. That was fire. That was some anime line this morning, like, fucking hell. It's a moment where you get to be in front of the Western crowd and you realize, like, the Western fans love that stuff. And you're like, before you go, you're like, Def probably, like, before the before the series, he's like, if I win, I'm going to put that line in there. The fans will love that. <laughs> you know? Wait, here's, here's what really cements how nobody thought the RX was winning, right? When I made that video about Def, mate, all the comments from Def fans were like, amazing video, just to shame me what we win in this next game. It's like, you're even his fan. Like, dude, none <laughs> of them believed. No one believed. No one believed. The joke was just making semis was success for that team, you know? Yeah. Uh, good video if you guys have a chance. By the way, obviously. if they do win Worlds as well, I'll just tell you right now. <laughs> like, League of Legends is just, like, just turn off. Or just basically, if, if DRX wins Worlds, just, I know everyone's computer is a laptop, but just close it down until next year. Like, we're all just going to go on, like, we're not going to have any discussion, no, because it's good. The fans are going to ruin all narrative discussions, aren't they, if they actually win Worlds? I think, I think if DRX it's wins Worlds, then, uh, then Dom is actually going to have to go, uh, like, deep into the wilderness and hide for, like, three months in order to save his own sanity. <laughs> Gonna have to go on a spiritual retreat for a while just to get away from the fucking fans. Yes, he's gonna basically have to like embrace Vipassana and just go on like a thirty day retreat or something. Isn't he to just get all the fucking tweets out of his mind? Like the finally, they're all gone. Being, the best part about it being an LCK all all LCK final is there's just no there's just no discussion about oh should we care about which region wins or which which team wins. There's, there's only one region, so the region discussion just goes away. Which is my least favorite part of every world's international competition ever is which region is the best. I'm like, <laughs> the the Korean president doesn't come and lift the trophy in the end, actually. Uh, so I think this is actually not the important thing. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that we get to also have a finals where it's not like the one region is like, I hope they win because therefore my ego is, is sated because I'm, I'm so important for me for where I'm from to be the region that wins the championship instead of actually looking at the team. So we get that bonus. If it was an LPL versus LPL final, I'd feel the same way. No more region discussion. <laughs> Just who's the best team in this tournament. But also creates the best region. But we don't have to have that discussion anymore. I, I can't. People are very quiet about it. I can't. The, the ones who want to deny that are very quiet these days. Yeah, and also, if you like high-level League of Legends, you should be enjoying the teams for their own individual qualities, which is why I enjoyed JDG so much uh, this World Championship as well. Super fun team. Um, all right, do you want to take a quick break, and then we'll do some viewer questions? Uh, yeah. We'll do that when we get back. We'll see you in a couple. Right, obviously, we're going to do the viewer questions now. Wolf's going to join us because he's just joining us for everything. He, we even said the dreaded word esports bet while he was here. So, you know, he's just a real one, isn't he? So what we're going to do is these aren't questions submitted now. These are submitted anytime during the week up to this point of the show. And basically, you submit them by holding 25 grog coins, which is the cryptocurrency that we use, powered by Rally. And you can find out how to buy it by going to our Discord, Last Free Nation Discord. There's a grog coin lounge. There's a pinned tweet, and it'll tell you everything you need to know about buying them. Spoiler, it's too late to submit a question now, but this is something you do for next week. So I would say as a general, like, meta game, maybe think during the week of a question and then submit it the day before. And then you probably got a good chance of it being asked.
First question. World's matches have been great this year. Does the balance team need to make more big moves like the durability patch? What do you think needs to be addressed next? Well, they always make big moves. I would argue that that durability patch shouldn't have been done when it was done, which was in the middle of the, the year. But its effects have been very, very good, I think. There was too much burst damage in the game. It's made team fights like a lot more pleasant to watch in my mind. It's been really, really good overall. Why do they really have to play whack-a-mole all the time? Well, they're the ones who made all those mythic items that are OP as fuck. And then yeah. they're like, there's a bit too much damage in the game. Make all the like, make strike champions strong. It's like, you're the ones who did it. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm kind of going in line with, with Thorin a little bit in this, was what I was going to say is that some of the issues that they created were solved by the durability patch. I love yes. making moves like the durability patch in the middle of the year. As long as it's not in the middle of a season, if it's in the middle of the, if it's between seasons for the world, like I think that's okay, um, because it, it changes the game and it and it makes it more interesting. The problem is, should we be having to make these big changes to make the game more interesting? So it's, it's a kind of a chicken and egg problem. It's like, okay, well, which 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 is the better way to keep the game the same so that players can play the best and like we don't have all these changes and the game is more understandable for people who take breaks? Because if you take a break for two years in league, you come back like I don't know what's going on anymore because they make so many of these changes. That leads to stale gameplay though, and in, in metas if you don't change things a lot. But if you change things too much, then it becomes very difficult to follow as a viewer. I think they've done a pretty good job of, of walking the line. We'll see what happens with the jungle changes next year, but Riot made two really insanely bold decisions this year, which is not something they're very known for. They took out the Chemtech Drake. They actually yep. admitted they were wrong, which I never thought we'd see. Yeah, that was very good. And I, and I think that we're seeing a big change in their philosophy on how they're balancing and how they're changing, and they're trying to make things interesting but also fun. And I think everybody pretty universally agrees that durability patches made League of Legends more fun to play and more yes. fun to watch, so... I think that they're taking risks, which could have backfired if their decisions were bad, but they took risks and their decisions were good, so I, I, I'm very happy with how things have gone so far for this year. I don't consider myself an expert on League of Legends, so I'll just say something funny, like, I think everyone should just for free get teleport in the game as a third summoner spell. You or, like that? <laughs> if everybody just had flash by default and you could pick two other summoner spells, might be interesting. I think that would be bad. Scroll at the shop. <gasps> That's another game. So uh, that's another game. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I think um, honestly, they should stop making champions. That's my take. The biggest move they could make is not adding any more fucking champions to this game, reworking the old champions to actually help be more meta uh, at the professional level. Because the more champions they make, the harder the barrier to entry for new players is. Fix the old champions first. And you can kill two birds with one stone there, Monty. So if it's a champion like Garen, that's almost never going to be played. You just make that whatever the new champion would yep. be and remove old Garen and just keep... Because yep. I also agree, the other problem you're going to have is, like, most other games that use heroes and champions and this sort of, like, characters, whatever you call them, like this different style of game, most other games have the opposite problem. Like, Overwatch never got enough of the characters. Most yep. other, like, Valorant probably doesn't have enough of the agents. Like, most of them have too few you league of legends is getting to the point where soon it will also make drafting really ridiculous if there's like 250 champions like you can't you just can't manage it at that point so no one can play that many things yep and also no new player can learn what they all do so then you hurt your player yeah. base because it's just people who already play the game it's really hard to bring in new people that yeah that's the number one question i get when i play with new players uh if i do it with them and they're like oh i i, I watched a little bit of worlds so i want to play some of my friends back home they'll be like let's queue up and play a normal game together and the question I always get after someone who's new to the game dies is, 
what does this champion even do? <laughs> and then and then they die to a different champion on the team. They die to the support who like engages on them, like Nautilus hooks them or something. Like this guy can do this. I don't know what any of these champions do. And then you, you're like, okay, I, and you walk away from that game, be like, okay, I learned a lot. The the new player, right? Then you go to the next game, and there's nine other champions you've yeah. never seen before, yeah. and you have to ask the same question. It, it's, it's a huge burden of knowledge on new players. Um, and because the game is so old, and as you mentioned, there are so many champions, and champions are still coming out. It'll pretty slow, right? But they're still coming out. It's uh, it's it's tricky to to walk that line for new players a lot. Um, but to, for the veteran players, they want something new. So, and obviously for Riot to to sell skins and to sell champions, you know, there's there's huge advantages for them to make champions, and I think they will. And I don't think we could stop that, but it's tough. It's tough. All right, next question. In reference to the Pirates of the Caribbean, nine pieces of eight, which, what would be the notable trinkets the LFN major contributors would use to summon the esports goddess who could finally realize the phrase esports Delenda est? We'll just do the people here. Uh, so basically, what would we sacrifice in the summoning ritual to destroy esports? I would take a, I would take a book of all of the, the great formats that have died over the years and light it on fire because they're already dead and people refuse to use them. And uh, that, that is one of the things that I, I hope destroys esports is people uh, not using great formats. That's a really good question. Maybe I just write So the aim is to destroy esports. So we actually try yeah, to yeah, make what it the, right. What would your trinket be that you throw on the flames okay. to summon the, the god that destroys esports? I, I think I would just write down a list of all the maybe maybe on on your note like write down a list of all the people who've held esports back secretly the, <laughs> the shadow puppeteers who have actually like who are unnamed and people outside the industry don't know who they are write all their names down on a piece of paper and throw that into the fire uh, as a declaration of these are the ones who have held us back five years <laughs> from where we should be. Oh, I mean, here's the thing. I'm going to stick with Monty's angle that the theme is that the actual end goal that we were going for is to let the goddess destroy esports. So what I would do is I would just do a hypnotic ritual whereby basically in, in an instant, everyone in the world had to be absolutely as diligent about morals and ethics regarding all the companies that have any influence over esports as they were about G2 Carlos. Do that and it's over. It's over tomorrow, guys. It's over tomorrow. I didn't even say the names for Wolf's sake there. He has to go to some of these countries, so I kept it safe. Don't worry about it. How long before LFN starts producing better world songs slash videos than Riot? Tragically, we were, we, were, we were working on an idea about an Eye of the Tiger parody for Gen G, but they fucking lost, so we can't do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, I, I have a history of writing like parody songs that I think are pretty funny, so maybe we'll we'll do some of those. We've got Degon, who's a professionally trained singer. <laughs> Seems like the stars are aligning on yeah, that maybe, one. Maybe maybe who's a great editor. Maybe sooner than you think. That's the answer. Sooner than you think. Do you think the era of the LPL ADC is over? The best ADC in LPL is Viper, a Korean. Many Chinese ADCs can't play anything that's not Kaisa, Zaya, Filios, or Zeri. Three out of the four AP, uh, LPL teams had to ban Kate, no matter blue or red side. Feels LPL tops are now better than LPL ADC. I will point out, because this is now just going to, again, be retconned out of history, that fucking Jackie Love was the all-pro first-team ADC from LPL, and I can assure you he is incredibly Chinese. So... 
I don't really think it's like it's done. And then you also had Fortik was there as well. He was second team. He's another Chinese player and was having a very good, good split. Yeah, yeah, just unfortunately the team fell apart in the play. So now nah, there's still a lot of talent. It's just unfortunate yeah, they think, don't watch the LPL. I think the question really, uh, the the question kind of assumes that because LPL is not winning worlds, that like these players are somehow not relevant. Like I think it kind of assumes that, which. Is is the era of LPL eighty carries winning worlds over? Maybe, uh, but like, is the era of LPL eighty carry over? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, to be fair, Gala did just win fucking MSI again this year, guys. Yeah, like, I and mean, he's not I, even the I, best. I, I, so yeah. there's some very good players in that region. Don't even worry about it. Question feels a little bit like a bait, you know. <laughs> There are commonly so many issues plaguing Worlds that cause teams to very rarely be able to get an acceptable amount of practice in, or other issues that cause teams to be playing less than 100%. What are some more simple solutions to implement that would prevent some of these issues from occurring that could give us teams at their best? Stop moving Worlds around from city to city. Stop doing that. Just have it in one place, or like two places. It takes t so much time for these players to like fly around and then they have to shoot new B-roll in the new location to show that the players are there. So it takes more media time. Uh, also much more likely to get sick as you travel through all these airports into different environments and encounter a bunch of new people. Like, come so, on, oh, like so, just okay. fucking move. So I, I'm going to slightly disagree. I, I, I want to say that I think part of Worlds being a traveling show is part of its charm and, and that's what it is for the fans. And it's, it's a celebration of taking these amazing pros to places they don't live and have them compete in these places. I think it really, the team, it, it, the burden is on the teams and how they how they take care of their players and where they put their players. If they allow their players to go roaming the streets of New York and Times Square, like, or if teams are like, you need to stay here. I know it's New York and you want to go out, but like, actually we're here to win, stay in the hotel room, wear a mask, et cetera, whatever they want to do. I think it, the burden is not really on Riot. I think the burden is on the teams to make sure their players actually stay safe. And I think traveling is, is like, for me, it's not really compromisable. Like, I think we should be traveling to cities. I think how Riot does Worlds allows these players to see new parts of the world and compete in new parts of the world and encounter new fans. I think it's literally the point of Worlds, basically, to travel to these cities, in my opinion. So I disagree, but I think the teams need to be responsible for their players. And T1 famously didn't get COVID uh, until the very end, obviously, of the finals in spring. Uh, whereas basically every other team had some COVID issues because T1 had extremely strict rules for their players and their staff, wouldn't let anyone enter the team house, etc. Like, there are precautions you can take, and it's unfortunate that that has to happen. But ultimately, to me, I think teams need to be much more on lock with their players if they want to prevent these types of things from happening, illness in particular. I would say the problem is to the whole practice angle and how you can solve that. The only way I know to solve it, unfortunately, takes away a lot of the actual appeal of League of Legends as an esport, which is in League of Legends, as a game historically, it is its best when you have a few days to a week to prepare for a specific opponent and you can absolutely figure out like a meta read, a draft angle. And that tends to be what makes some of the great narratives, not just what they do in the server. The problem is if you want to get away from the fact that as there's no teams left, there's no one to scream. You have to go to something like the CSGO major or TI where people are just playing every single day and it doesn't matter that, you know, like you get to like two teams there because the day before you were playing a match and you were playing scrim as well. So the problem is I think that would actually like, you, you, there's two opposite incentives there. All right. In Korean forums, this world semis were coined as the clash of CV Max's promised children. From JDG, we have Kanavi, previously of Griffin. From T1, Karia, 
from Genji, Doran, Chovy, and Lehens, from DRX, Pioshik, all of whom CV Max claims to have recruited or promoted at the start of their pro careers. That said, how close is CV Max in cementing himself as a GOAT scouter in League of Legends? I mean, he's up there with the original MVP uh, roster as well, because you have to remember, MVP scouted all the players that became Samsung White and Blue uh, and became the two best teams in the world uh, in 2014. So MVP has, as, as Wolf could tell you, across titles, MVP has a crazy success yes. record of, of scouting. They are hands down the best scouting org in esports history. They, they besides, uh, maybe besides Lunatic High, also ended up being the best scouting for uh, Counter-Strike pros in Korea, a region that doesn't really even play Counter-Strike um, very much. So, uh, yeah, MVP is definitely the OG scouting org. It obviously, you know, no longer exists um, in the capacity it used to. I think it does exist in some small form. Uh, but, yeah, that is that is the, uh, the one you always look at. But I think... We do have to give CB Max credit for. Oh, for sure, time, for sure, absolutely. I actually think he's like probably the most underrated coach Korea's ever had because the other ones just get their status oftentimes from going to the LPL, winning fucking worlds, then coming back. It's like what, like that's not even the same angle. So to me, that's like it's very different to be able to coach the best players. That's a skill set, and it can make you the best coach too. But in my opinion, the thing about CV Max is he looks like he's actually scouting for something specifically he wants to use that player for in a team. Like if people don't know the story, he did actually want to use Kanavi and bring him into DRX when he was leaving from the Griffin side. So like, this is a guy where as far, that was even part of the drama of how Canavi was sold to the LPL, if you remember, as CV Max was on his way out when he had then like the lawsuit or whatever with fucking Sword. So to me, the key thing for, for me is like, he's some like Bill Belichick character ways. It's not that he's just picking a player that's always going to be amazing. He's picking a guy that has like an angle he sees that he wants in his team. And so that's why to me, I mean, I'd love to actually see a full interview about this one day. Like, I'd love to know what he saw in, like, Pioshik, for example. I've always thought he was a bit meh as a fucking jungler, but he clearly saw some angle to him and trusted him, et cetera, you know? You know, Runner Runner is the one that comes to mind for me who built rosters like that um, from Overwatch, and he's also yeah. been involved in scouting in other games, too. Um, but, yeah, Runner, for who is the guy who made Runaway, for those who don't know, in Overwatch is another name that comes to mind in terms of this sort of scouting thing. Yeah. A lot of great legends in Korea for this. Where do you stand on League of Legends having buff timers and dragon timers versus being manually timed in the early season? Do you believe that these are skills that add take away from the game? Look, as, as an esports purist, they shouldn't exist. Uh, these are skills that define player styles. The thing about modern games and why Brood War was so good was, should a modern game have multi-building multi selection? Yes, because it's fucking annoying to click on 10 different barracks and make a marine on every one of them. But you only have so much brain space and so much speed. So the thing that happened was because the game itself was challenging to play from a UI perspective, meant that players in Brood War had very distinct styles from each other, which made the game very exciting. Now, if we're talking about jungle timers, the harder they make it to have these, but instead of just spoon feeding them to you, means that it's a skill to track them, which means that there is a higher skill ceiling to jungle pathing and prediction and map play. And so that is very good. However, I also recognize that people have to play the game to watch the game and to appreciate the game. And for a fucking pleb, it's very annoying to, to have to manually do those timers. And it makes jungling a pain in the ass if you are a silver jungler in solo queue. So you have to strike a balance between these two things. Yeah, and I, I like. I mean, I don't really have that much to add. I think Monty like pretty much hit my exact opinion on this. Um, 
it was tedium, basically, to type in the chat the Drake and Baron spawn timers, which is what people did on the Korean server, is you would just instantly type, the second it was spawned, the time it was going to respawn, they'd be like, okay, like 1935 dragons respawning. Then you would type every minute, 1935, 1935, by the way, 1935, and you would just type, and people would just repeatedly be typing in chat. The whole chat was just filled with the, the next Drake timer. So it, was, so it was already there. You just had to type it. So it was just tedium, uh, basically, to me. And like, yeah, it's cool that you can keep track of these things and it, and it does add to the intensity of the game and the eSport, but for just the, the game being better and getting, like, your team is already, if you're in lower ranks, like, they're not grouping up for Dragon. They don't even know when it's spawning. How the hell are they ever going to group up for Dragon? I, I, I think it was a really good change for the game. It does take a little bit away from the eSport, but it, it's only a little bit. So I think it's, in my opinion, 100% the right call from Riot. I mean, the problem here, basically, is people don't really know what they're asking for. Like, if they're asking, would the game be, like, more skillful and allow more, like, ability, like Monty's saying, to show off, like, how your brain bandwidth is and all the things. Yeah, of course it would. So it would mean the absolute best players, in theory, could distinguish themselves more. Like, for example, if people don't know, one thing that's famous about Doinby is, even in actual matches, he does type out, like, fucking flash timers and stuff like that, like, into the chat while mid laning and fucking CS him, which is incredibly impressive. The problem is... Would you all watch League of Legends like I would watch Quake, etc., if like a tenth of the people played the game and there was way less prize money and way less... Re no, a lot of you wouldn't. So there has to be a sweet spot where enough people play the game, it's enormous, and then we try and make the game really cool. To me, in League of Legends, by the way, spoiler, I wouldn't try and make League of Legends a hardcore game. I think everything about why it has succeeded in some ways that Dota hasn't... I think Dota, personally, I prefer it as a game, but it's never going to be as big a League of Legends for good reason, and these are part of the reasons why, unfortunately, it's the compromise they made for the casual player, in my opinion. Commentators are going to be like, it's so hype that they knew the dragon would would spawn at this time. It's tedium, basically. The best parts of League of Legends are the macro reads, the vision game, the incredible, uh, you know, micro outplays, right? The the hands moments, like those are the those are the things that people want to watch for, not for memorizing Drake or jungle timers. Like I think these things are part of the skill set, but they're also just not a cool thing to be excited about. That said, if they go through with the changes where jungle, counter jungling becomes more difficult, no, that's a different. Will that's a different conversation. Lose my, lose my fucking. That's shit. a different conversation. That's not a timer. Let's say. I will lose my fucking shit, yeah. guys. Uh, on average, the best NA team can beat which seed from LPL and LCK. I think that should determine which pool NA seed one goes to. Uh, okay, that's a fair point. Probably like can beat what in a best of five i mean it gets pretty probably not or... probably not because like that's assuming na is going to quarters right like i think they're probably thinking about groups because that's why they want to see what pool yeah i mean i i think it's probably like sixth at best maybe na number one could beat a sixth place team in a best of five and also the problem with that, that this is also the reason, by the way, why this whole like, let's figure out the regions based on worlds is a kind of a whack approach. Because first of all, as you saw with LEC, it just means when you have a, a once in a generation team like G2, the whole region gets overrated. Then when you go the other way, like pretty swear, this world's EG with Kauri didn't come in at all as the best NA team, but they played like the best NA team. They were in a bunch of those games, even against G2 and Dam One and stuff. They had moments they look good. That's just because their strength were actually macro strengths so I don't think that whole thing even works I think to me the reason why I don't think LCS should be a top region is I think the other three are distinguished enough apart from them in all of history 
I don't even mind, by the way, if you want to have a compromise, let's have LPL and LCK be like one set of seeds and then have like fucking NA and EU and fucking LMS be like the third set and then have the fourth, you know, I'd do some I'd do more tiers or something. Next, of the three great classic sci-fi writers of Clark, Asimov, and Heinlein, who's your favorite and why? I've actually read very little of Clark and Asimov and none of Heinlein, so I, I don't have an opinion on this one. Same. <laughs> Except I mean, for I, me, I haven't read any of them. <laughs> I've read very little of most of them. I just see Robert Heinlein then as a result. Stranger <laughs> in Strange Land. Uh, in what range do you rank Steph Curry in your all-time list? And do you think that your limitations as a player should ever propel you higher in these discussions? Or should it only be treated as a narrative piece of trivia, such as Steph Curry achieving all-timer success despite being way smaller relative to his peers? I pretty I personally hate that angle. Because what you're saying is, if you're saying, like, essentially your list when you make your top list essentially is, in order, who is the greatest player to ever play this sport? So it doesn't make any sense to go, well, this guy, you know, maybe he's not, like, actually the 10th best, but he was, like, half as big as them. It's like, no, we're saying which is the 10th best. So to me, like, for example, if you have, like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Wilt Chamberlain in, like, your top five, who were incredibly tall... Yeah, that's why they were really good as well. That's like a very good factor to have in a height-based sport. So, no, like, I think that angle doesn't really make sense, especially because in his case, he's a fucking shooter anyway. So, like, at that particular point in time, the height is less relevant. So, I wouldn't do it. I'll put it this way. I do think the problem is, because now people are doing that thing where they just count all rings for everyone. The problem Steph Curry has is he's won four rings now, right? But he hasn't in the way that any player that's going to be on this list has. Like, if you say Michael Jordan has won six rings, he was the best player on all six of those teams. Steph Curry wasn't. So the problem I have is Steph Curry would like marginally be in my top 20, but he wouldn't be like one of these like fucking one ear characters who'd like, is he as good as Michael Jordan? It's not even in the discussion, in my opinion. Somebody changed their name to Anime Questions 2023. Uh, asking us to voice act. No, I'm not, I'm not doing voice acting for you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, who is the worst team to ever make worlds from the three major regions uh, and NA? That's an interesting question. The worst team from the three major regions and NA. Is it Afrika? Maybe. Uh, I think it might be Afrika. Uh... It's not fair to say, like... No, well, because it counts NA know. as well, come on. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think they, they meant from the three major regions, and then they added NA as a joke. Because oh, right. Major regions. Okay. I mean, it, like, there's some, there's some good options here, like Nodgen White Shield 2014 is a pretty good option. Um, the, uh, I mean, as far as NA goes, it has to be an NA team, right? So maybe, like, Clutch Gaming from 2019. Yeah. I guess I'm just biased towards the Afrika thing because it's my region, and watching back some of those VODs doesn't feel great. The problem here is, by what metric are we doing it? Like, when he says best team, I'm taking, like, for the whole year, not, like, how they did at Worlds. Like, logically, by that logic, it's TSM, they with 6 Yeah. You know? But it isn't. Like, on paper, they had some pretty good players, so it probably aren't the actual worst. So if, you, if it's more like to make Worlds, like, what's the worst team to qualify to Worlds? That's a tough one. Because, by the way, this DRX team out of Korea would, would be a shout for that. For sure. 
no one knew before, like we said that you do any yep. of this stuff like that. That looked terrible on paper. Actually, if yep. people don't remember, I'll point this out for the millionth time. I won the opening bet of this world's, which was DRX was playing RNG, and they were a pretty big underdog, by the way. They were like 3.6 odds. So I picked it just because of the odds. I was like, it's only a BO1. They could I didn't think they were gonna win. I was like, they could win though. I'll take like three points something, and I just won the BO1. And then obviously spurred the whole run. In many ways, it was me that started it all. You know, I was I was the one who inspired them. Like, in fact, Deft even heard Thorin has money on this game. Right. I'll actually start trying now. The last few years I've been sort of falling in and trying to fuck that Chovy guy, but now I'll now I'll try. I don't care about this question. So let's go to the next one. Uh, favorite Twitch slash Pepe emote, and you can't choose your own. Kappa for me. Classic. <laughs> I'm just gonna go with Kappa. <laughs> I miss old Pogchamp a lot, actually. I miss old Pogchamp a lot. I like the laughing Thorin emote too. That one's really that one's really good. It's very good. I'm not even really a big fan of fucking emotes. So. <laughs> All right. Probably just Monka S or something. There you go. Uh, this year in Dota, the second and third place teams from regional qualifiers were invited to a last chance qualifier for TI. The two teams who qualified through this LCQ have both made top three, and one of them won, I believe, from that qualified through that, right? Tundra won that? Oh, no. They, they were like a DPC team. Oh, okay. Some of our was, the LCQ two of them were. Two, two of the top three were. Allowing them to get hot. I hate these this narratives. Is... So, <laughs> guys, let me just spell this out for you. No team's like, yeah, you know what? If, if we lost a bunch and then went to the last chance qualifier, we'll have an advantage because we'll get hot. Like, we surely should play more games and put everything on the line. They're more losers bracket. Uh, analogy, people are like, well, the losers bracket just allows teams to like have an advantage because they, they gain more experience. They gain more experience. It's like, okay, dumbass. Then why don't teams intentionally lose to get into the losers bracket if it's such a great advantage? It's not an advantage. Though there are there are some arguments to be made. Like some teams do change their play style and actually evolve during a losers bracket, but it was not because they went to the losers bracket that they actually suddenly won. <laughs> so they didn't. They didn't want to be down there, guys. Nobody but, wanted. Yeah, teams to be teams can improve over the course of a losers bracket. That does happen. Happen. But that's not that's not an unfair advantage that any team has. That's just ridiculous to to assume. That's a really weird narrative that people are pushing. I've never heard of this. Uh, to me, it's Dakota, just but... it's just basically called survivorship bias, where because a team did win a tournament from the low bracket, you're like it must be better. But then what you don't know is the time when a team came from the low bracket and the other guy in the upper bracket didn't play a game, watched it, and was like, oh, I've solved you before we even played the game. I, it's the same, I, I, the same exact problem happens with fans. Here's what they do, right? If we had a tournament in Korea, everyone's going to tell you, Wolf, the Korean crowd will help all the Korean players win, except for the game when you shit in the bed and the crowd's deadly silent and you're totally aware inside your head, oh my God, I'm letting everyone down. That's the opposite effect. So what you do is when it happens and you win and everyone plays awesome, you say the crowd helped. When it doesn't, you just awkwardly like ignore the fact that like the crowd can play against you. So I think it's just a classic example of survivorship bias, basically. I, I think the, the the question does kind of ask as well is that is that a good sign for the format? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Like if you have these teams that are qualifying late through this last chance qualifier, basically proving themselves at the most important time before, because often these formats and these seeding things uh, too much like favor teams who won earlier in the year when the meta has changed and then they come back and they're not good actually, which is why we've now you know stacked more points towards summer season because it makes more sense that way. But if you have a last chance qualifier or a world's gauntlet like Korea has, which allows DRX to be the best at the end 
it's actually a good format, in my opinion. And the fact that these teams are then qualifying through this last chance qualifier and then performing really well internationally means we're getting better games in the tournament and the best teams are being shown. So yeah, to answer the, the real question of this is, yes, I think it's a good sign for the format. I think it means the format is working. Uh, over the years, there have been a number of successful role swaps. Are there any retired pro players you would like to see play a different role? Any current pro players that you would think would be more suited to a different role? I mean, I think that you have a lot of options. Like, Doanby should probably go switch to support at some point during his career, especially as he gets older. Um, Faker, you might be able to make the same argument about. I mean, the obvious one is Chovy to top. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's the one that people talk about the most. Um... And then those 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 voices were kind of silenced when he changed his playstyle a lot this year, but they're coming back again after how he played um, in in the semifinals last night. Um, he's definitely a standout for me, and he has played top lane because of the uh, COVID situation. He actually subbed in for top and played Trindamir and played it extremely well. It's like very Chovy champion, right? Uh, I think he'd be great in top, and maybe he will one day switch. I just think in general, just like Jauhu, I think a lot of mid laners should consider playing top lane, not least because then you have all these like flex opportunities. Just like when Perks went to ADC, you're going to be already able to play a certain mages like fucking Lissandra or something that'll work in the odd matchup against some guy who's already been a top laner. I basically just think it should be like the logical career evolution, especially because mid laners a role, like you'll always have to be very good to play that role. Like if you start to drop off skill wise, it's probably better to just swap roles. If I had to yeah. pick one though, if you want like a deep dive, I would would bring Froggen back, but I'd tell him, just play ADC for fuck's sake. It's just a farming game. Sit in lane and just farm. You don't ever have to roam. All you have to do is walk up to a dragon. That's it. Just farm and then just fucking late game team fight. It's all we need, mate. Uh, what is the thing that ro that ruins the LOL world's experience the most for you? The lack of double elimination, wacky best of one system, the tournament being unnecessarily long. I don't think it's unnecessarily long. The meta change before it begins, the, that most teams get gradually worse as the tournament goes on or other fault of the biggest esports tournament. Like for me, it's, I think it's BO1s are actually the worst. And then second is double limb. BO1 for me is, is obviously bad um, in, a, in a perfect world where we actually have unlimited time and money. Like no one would want to play these BO1s. Um, I think they're they're a good compromise for the group stage format. The rapid fire bo ones that happen at the end are the problem. Yeah, because that's three in one day. Is that really doesn't allow you to properly uh, prepare for that day, which is extremely important. Will decide your fate in the group, and you have to play against multiple teams and do best of ones. I don't think and League nobody ever does that except outside of yes. that one day at you're, MSI and the one day at Worlds. Exactly. So your entire year in preparation and training doesn't prepare you for this. So. It's very odd that it's the most important part of the tournament yeah. is decided that way. So that's my biggest issue with the format. A thing I hate the most out of all, like obviously, yeah, in theory, I'd had like the low bracket. So I just hate the way the groups are done. I think it's just fucking imbecilic that like, oh, you can't have more than one region and one group. It's like, so we're just inherently making groups unfair to keep regions apart because spoiler, you don't even apply that in the playoffs, which just means you just get stupid brackets anyway. So like I would just do a real seeding. I know, listen, it actually require a set of fucking nuts to go, mm, this team's better than this one. But like, I'm so bored of pools that tell me that like gam is as good as like fucking rogue or whatever like that that's just a stupid test oh that wouldn't be a good one because they were like that's g2 g2 and gam are not the same are they like this is just stupid to do so i hate that group system i think it's just stupid as fuck yep and by the way i think it also encourages because of some of the unfair groups teams that sometimes are the number one c don't get really much out of it 
Instead of using game time to determine which team starts blue side, what would you guys think of short 1v1 format, say 30 CS, one kill, one plate, to determine uh, starting choice? Do you think it would be fun pre-match content? No. Okay. It would take too long. Number two, you have to understand, I fucking hate soccer as a sport. And one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I hate soccer is because in the most important moments of the game, when it's a tied game and you go to the penalty shootout, you literally are practicing a, a 1v1 skill and invalidating the entirety of the game that you just played using an entirely different team-based set of rules for this really, really dumb 1v1. So I hate formats that use skills that aren't applicable to the rest of the game to decide something important. Yeah, I, I think the best side selection... Uh, choice will be seeding, obviously. If it's a tie, it should just be a coin flip. I think it's just that simple for me. Like, I, I, I do think the higher-seeded team should always have side selection for Game 1 in Finals or uh, Best of Fives, basically, which we do not have in every tournament. Um, like, for example, the LCK, despite having first seed and having the higher seed going into the Finals, you will not uh, have an advantage, and it will still be the Game 1's, uh, you know, Game one side selection will be determined by a coin toss. I think that should be given to the first seed, but if there is no determining factor, it shouldn't be based on game time or kills or anything weird like that. It should just be a coin flip then in that case. Because kills and game time are bad metrics for how teams looked and what they did. They're just not good metrics for that because every game is different. So some teams are playing late game comps, so like, should they be penalized for that? Like, absolutely not, in my opinion. So, Next question. <laughs> Watching Deft and Faker make it to the finals made me come to realize how sad I would be when they retire in the very near future. Do you think the next generation of LCK players will be able to captivate viewers the same way they have? It's going to be really fucking hard. I mean, Faker is a legend. And the thing about Faker is as long as he keeps playing, he will bring people back who don't play League anymore. Like, I guarantee you, people who haven't watched League in five years are going to be watching these finals because Faker is a part of it because they remember him. Uh, he's incredible. He is the single most important person to the League of Legends ecosystem, and there isn't anybody who's even come close to rivaling his accomplishments or his uh, the mystique, the aura that he has. It's tough, but you see, you see, sports go through these like boom and busts. Like there are times in every sport when there's just not the guy. You know, sometimes you get Michael Jordan, you can ride that shit, or LeBron James, and ride it for a number of years, and then there's no more the guy, and like. That's just how it goes. I think we have, we have a lot of work to do in terms of storytelling and, and capturing some of the magic that OGN had to make these players legendary. Um, and I think that's something that, that yep. my region and my tournament needs to work on because I think there is a next generation of LCK players that could captivate the viewers, but will they is the question that we have to answer. And that's something that even that we as commentators of the LCK have to solve. So I hope so. Um, but right now, no one is coming any, anywhere close. It will take five years plus for people to stand up and say that they can compare their legacy to, to these players like Deft and Faker. The main problem for me is I don't think Deft even is actually in the same category in that respect because the problem is no one else gets to as many like world semis and finals as Faker. So he also is not only like the greatest player, but he's like a permanent fixture in how you even think of worlds and like who you have to go through and what it means. So the problem is that like you can't replace that. I always say this, when a great player retires, you can have another great player come along, but they'll never be vaguely even the same player and it takes years for them to power up and get the same accomplishments. So the real problem you have with 
faker is. You not only lose like one of the greatest individual players ever, but then he also has like the greatest career at the same time as well. Whereas usually people sadly tend to often have like the trophy style, like amazing individual play, but they don't always have the the team career. Where sometimes people have the team career, like like for example, I don't think your cow was one of the best mid laners ever. She had a pretty good team career though. Look at all the championships, all the finals, all the semis. So it's just so rare you ever get someone who combines both that I don't think you can you can never take that for granted. Like you can't replace them. Yeah. I mean, it's, traditional sports have this problem all the time. Like I'm saying, like, you know, how, how bad do you think the NHL felt when Gretzky retired? Like you just, you have to just wait for the next guy sometimes. And that's, that's it. <laughs> you can't manufacture these people artificially. You can prop up some of their legacy, but Faker's legacy is just so impressive and enduring. Like, you know, Faker, Faker is a player that comes along once every 10 years in esports. Like all esports, right? It's his level is is very unique. It's, it's crazy because even we have this discussion a lot, and a lot of StarCraft fans get mad when I say this because I was a StarCraft commentator. I commentated this player I'm going to name, who I know both of you know who I'm going to say, Flash. Yes. And Flash's legacy has been eclipsed by like not even a small margin, but a massive margin now. Like Flash was by far and above the best StarCraft Brood War player across his career, and he was the most consistent. There were big legends before him, obviously, but no one ever accomplished as much as Flash did in the time period in which yep. he did it. But Faker has done this for a decade now! And it's not. And, and Flash was winning tournaments recently in the ASL, but we have to, we have to be frank and say the, the competition are all older players like him who are streamers, and they are actually streaming and not work, living in team houses and grinding for 12 hours a day like all the StarCraft pros did back then that Flash was dominating at a young age. So Flash's recent accomplishments are not as is relevant even as Faker's recent accomplishments where he's playing against young players with new players in a team-based game and he's still actually dominating. Like, you can't even compare, like, other esports players to Faker's legacy. Like, in League of Legends, not even close. But in all of esports, like, who even really can stack up to this guy is, is a really big question that I don't know will be answered in, in the next decade even necessarily. Uh, it might take even longer for someone to stack up to him. What is your esports worst fear? Well, the Monopoly hellscape that we live in is pretty much my worst fear. Uh, having all of these developers or Twitch, for example, with these massive monopolies is deeply bad for our industry. My, my worst fear, I, I, I saw this question earlier and I thought about it a lot. And I think at first I was like, I don't know. But now I, I'm thinking my worst fear is that esports will change with the, the evolution of internet and stuff to be online based rather than in person um, because it's cheaper and that's the appeal of esports. And like some people were saying that during COVID, like we might not go back to live events because everyone can just watch online and who cares. But I, my worst fear is that your average esports league is online and not offline. Um, and for the longest time, that was the case outside of Korea. Now that the offline Korean model is starting to, to trickle through a lot of esports um, outside of Korea. I hope that's here to stay. I, my, my fear is that we will go to a completely online system where like only like the world's finals or something is, is offline, but everything else is online. That, that's, I think, my, my worst fear for esports. 
This one might actually be getting fixed by what LEC and potentially if LCS changes happens. But my biggest fear would be that all the idiots in every game that isn't League of Legends got their dream come true and they got their own LCS and everything's just a shit fest BO1 against two opponents weekly. That I think is the worst format to watch in all of these. But if people don't know, famously, because I'm an elitist, even in Counter-Strike, I, I, the games I watch the least are the fucking BO1s in a group stage. Like, I used to just wait for the playoffs for the real games to begin and then in League of Legends it's like that's like 80% of the season are the worthless fucking BO1s I just hate that in general for me playoff playoff esports is what esports is about yep <laughs> who would you rather Vitality take for next year assuming Perk stays Alfari Cabochard or Oduamne uh, I, I think it depends on what they do at the ADC position honestly like that that to me dictates a lot right because the way the team was set up was to have a weak side ADC and have Alfari. So if they pick up Neon or something like that, then maybe Odo Omne might be better for them, right? The problem with that is it was alluded to me, and especially by the fact that they've tried multiple times and did now make a team together. The Alfari perks thing was basically the whole premise of what the team was based on. It was sort of like, let's yeah. play together, and then they made a team. So I don't think it's plausible they will swap one out. But anyway, I think the Odo Omne one would be brilliant. Because again, yeah, you could just put in a... One thing that Europe's got at the moment is a lot of like, not amazing, but a lot of good ADCs. Yeah, so I think sure. the difference is you, there's very few players as good as Odo Omne at like weak side. So you can just plug him in, and then you could take any of these guys. You could have Neon. You could have a bunch of them. You could have Hans Armour if you could get him. There's a bunch of good players could play that role. And I have a strong opinion. <laughs> Assuming Riot doesn't do a good job with the T1 versus DRX and Faker versus Deft storylines, can you provide some historical context on the narrative between the finals match? Um, so, sure. I, I, to be fair to Riot, a lot of their, their hype videos for playoffs have been extremely good in my opinion. Um, I think they've done a good job of talking to the players, and I think a lot of that, I know uh, Theon uh, has been, after he, he left uh, Upcomer, has been doing, a, like, working with them on the storyline pieces, so that's been pretty good. And then we've got, like, Emily Rand doing the illustration piece and everything like that that they, they helped her produce. So I think a lot of the narratives will probably be pretty good. Obviously, there's, like, tons of, old, like, ex-teammate narratives between these two things. Um, you know, the fact that Deft hadn't been to a world semifinal in, you know, many, what, like eight years or something like that. Yeah. He's never I think been in a final, first final ever. Yeah, first final. Um, I mean, everyone's talking about they went to the same high school. Um, I think that's like, it, it's kind of funny that that works out that way, but I think it's like the least interesting part of this. Um, just considering how long they've both been pros and um, how little they've actually met in incredible big high stakes matches like this, considering yep. how long they've both played in the same league. They just don't, they, there's the Faker versus Deft has not been like a long going rivalry or storyline. Correct. Because they haven't really met like this before. And like when, De before Deft went to China, um, that was the, the year where Deft was huge was the year that T1 was kind of bad. Uh, so there, it, it, there wasn't really a rivalry between like Samsung Blue and, and T1 that year. And then he, then he left for China and was there for a while and came back and was kind of on sort of sus rosters. Yeah, that's, that's the one thing that I think Riot has been pretty good about so far in terms of how they've set this up. And I think the Casters is not trying to create this fake rivalry because there isn't really a rivalry there. Like, I, and I think that I've seen people say there's a rivalry on Twitter. I've seen it on Reddit and stuff. There, there isn't really an existing rivalry between these two players, except like competing in Legacy and stuff. But unfortunately, Deft hasn't come even close. Um, so... 
the the cool thing about this, I think one of the, the biggest storylines is T1 was with this roster and how they performed in spring, like people were saying they were going to win Worlds. No one ever said that about DRX at any point all year long. And it's, it does feel like a David versus Goliath story in that way. And, and that's, to me, one of the coolest parts about this because it's such an unlikely uh, finals matchup. To me, the crazy thing is, I mean, to be fair, we'll say, if you look at the history of T1, they are a team, aside from the first team with Piglet and Impact, that just naturally favours mid and top solo lanes, basically. They've had a lot of carry top laners. So I, I understand historically they haven't been the team, like, but Bang is definitely more in the prey category than, like, the fucking Uzi Eye death style. But the thing that's crazy to me is this. Bear in mind, these are the two great players from Korea with the most longevity. The idea they've never played in a bloody team together is pretty ridiculous if you think about it what not yeah. ever not even for one season ever that's okay. kind of wild if you think about it because death's gone everywhere and the fakers stayed in one spot they never ever teamed up i think that's kind of it's, it's almost it's a weird storyline itself it's, it's true might still happen. could happen i don't know maybe Gumi they do a last dance yeah gumi yushi's been having such a good worlds though that i think they'd probably be reluctant even though he was super shaky for a lot of this year his world's performance has been very strong and it's, I think it's hard to justify cutting him after the Worlds that he's had. Unless Deft puts him in the dumpster in the finals. Like, maybe that's the angle. Maybe maybe Deft, maybe Deft puts Gumiyushi in the dumpster, wins Worlds, and then has to, and then goes to T1. That'd be pretty I fun. mean, we've discussed this a lot on the, on the uh, co-stream, but like, if Deft, if Deft loses this finals, if he wins the finals, there's, there's some arguments. But who can afford Deft after this finals? Like, where does he go? Does he go to T1? Like, T1's probably the only team that can afford him. Maybe Gen G. <laughs> and I, I don't think he wants to go to China. Um, Gen so, G's not going to. So, Dimler's a free here. agent, I think, as well. So, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I am really looking forward to it. It's going to be a very fun offseason. I'm just amazed that the I know like Korea is not really the region to do this because they are more about like respecting the elder of the org and it's kind of like up to those people to make the decisions as to who joins the team and stuff. But like it's just wild to me because like I said about the Perks and Alfari thing, you would just think, especially in the modern day of how Western sports work, there'd be way more power players of like two players getting together. Like, why don't we just fucking make a team? Like that doesn't actually happen as much as you think in league. Doesn't NA. <laughs> it used to happen more, I'd say too. Um when there wasn't like a bunch of money involved and it was more about like, these are the people I want to win with instead of like, this is how much money I want to make. <laughs> so I think the, the priorities on that have changed quite a bit as esports have gotten bigger. All right, that was the last question. So thanks a lot for asking the questions. Uh, we'll be back next week for some post-Worlds content. Remember, we are going to be live in San Francisco. You can watch on the stream or you can come to the party if you like that sounds fun you should do that and just get free last free nation merch i don't know uh and watch our pre-worlds content come out for the watch party if you don't actually have tickets you can still come to the venue be part of the total experience um and if you are in the stadium come have a drink afterwards at the bar and we'll hopefully see you there but we'll see you next week on stream for si regardless bye